0: Hello, everyone. My name is Robert Winfrey, and you're about to listen to an old episode of a podcast I used to host called Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. This particular episode features myself and Mark Radlich as we discuss Mark's favorite television show of all time, The Wire. Now, Mark's love of The Wire is at this point a very good-natured meme, essentially, here at the Radelich and Broadcasting Network. And this show in particular was a, a chance to talk about that show... Uh, We were counting down to the end of Breaking Bad. The original air date for this episode was September 6th of 2013. So, counting down to the end of Breaking Bad, uh, a a massively influential show in its own right, and along the way, doing so, I looked at a bunch of very either character-driven, which is very high-quality, sort of gritty, darker television that uh, sort of paved the way for Breaking Bad to exist. And, there was an episode dedicated to The Sopranos, which is myself and uh, Pat Mullen. We re-released that in conjunction with The Many Saints of Newark being released, because Synergy. Uh, there's one dedicated to The Shield, there's one on Dexter, the Dexter one was re-released a little bit earlier as well, There's several of these, uh, counting down to Breaking Bad's finale. So, this one is about The Wire. Mark and I have a good conversation about it, because Mark can talk about The Wire forever. I'm a little bit surprised this episode was only as long as it is. But before we get into the podcast proper, let's pay a few bills here. Because we have sponsors, thankfully. Uh, First up, let's talk grammarly. The irony of The Wire... (laughs) Partially being sponsored by Grammarly. If you've seen the show, you will understand why that amuses me to a small degree. But for you listeners of Everyone Loves a Bad Guy here on the W2M Network slash Broadcasting Network, Grammarly is offering a free download of the Grammarly software. Grammarly's AI-powered products help people communicate more effectively. Grammarly helps you write mistake-free on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and anywhere else you write on the web. A lot of those places. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation and spelling mistakes while also catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary and suggesting style improvements. Contextual errors, man, they get you every time. Uh, to download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com/w2m network. Again, that's getgrammarly.com/w2m network to download Grammarly for free. There's a link in the description below if you would prefer to do that rather than type in uh, the address. Also sponsoring us Amazon Music. Uh, the Wire is... It wasn't heavy on music in the traditional way that music is used in television and film. Uh, in fact, it was one of the hallmarks of the show that it, very, that it didn't use a whole lot of it. But it would also be incorrect to say that there's no music in the show. If you would like to listen to some of the music that is featured in that particular show, or any other, uh, Amazon Music. It's a library of over 70 million songs, and we're giving you a free, you can have a free 30 days of that particular service on us. If you go to getamazonmusic.com slash w2mnetwork, uh, let them know that we're the ones that sent you. Amazon gets helped out, we get helped out, you get 30 days of the best music streaming service on the internet. After that, if you like it, you can keep it. If not, well, you lost nothing and you got 30 days of amazing streaming music. So, both of those links, uh, once again, get amazonmusic.com w2mnetwork. network there is also a link in the description below if you would rather click on that. With that out of the way, let me throw this to past me and Mark as we talk about HBO's landmark, groundbreaking television series, arguably the best series in the history of television, irrespective of genre, and I would not argue against you too hard if you made that argument, The Wire. Fellas, take it away. Thank <laughs> you.
1: of that tune, I'm going to keep using it because I happen to like it and this is my show. Hello, I am Robert Winfrey. I am hosting Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. So far on a weekly basis because we're counting down to the epic conclusion of Breaking Bad, which, if the last few episodes are any indication, is going to be all kinds of awesome. Uh, and hopefully Skyler gets killed during the process just because she annoys me. But we're not talking Breaking Bad tonight. That will come later. We're talking about... One of HBO's groundbreaking, all-encompassing, epic looks at the city of Baltimore, which, if the show is any indication, needs to be nuked and then folded into New Jersey because they're about as valuable as each other. We're talking The Wire, and I have a guest, a man who loves The Wire more than he loves The Hulk, which, if you know him, is saying quite a lot. He's been here before. He'll be back here again. It's his blog talk radio account we get to. We're a syndicated member of the Rad Broadcasting Network, as So we're not mooching, we're contributing, folks. But Mark Radelich is here, so let's welcome him back. Mark, how you doing?
2: I'm the fly in your soup. I'm the devil in your poop. Wow, I love that song. I sing it while I I try to get to work. (laughs) (laughs) I sing it while I try to get to work without falling asleep.
1: Well, that's good for that. So, you threatened me with bodily harm if I did not include you in this particular episode talking about The Wire. So, why don't you give us a little background on... Your love of that show, how you came to be so enamored with it and why if and why you would agree to leave your wife if they would bring it back on the air.
2: Uh the short answer is black people. Is that enough for you or do you need me to uh to, to add to that?
1: <laughs> that would be enough for me, but we have time to fill, so I'll go a little deeper into that.
2: What was that, Robert?
1: That would work for me normally, but since we have a lot <laughs> of time to fill, I'd say <laughs> go a little deeper.
2: Okay. You you need more than just black folks. Got it. So as we as we all know from the last time I was on this show uh I used to watch a, sh- a little ditty called Oz on HBO. And Oz had now I watched Oz because I had uh this fetish for um crime and prison shows, specifically prison type shows. So I was very fascinated by Oz as we talked about. And I remember seeing people like Lance Reddick on that show and it had a, ma- a majority black cast to it. There weren't you know, there was a fair amount of white folks on there. Uh, but for the most part, it was a, it was a all black cast, and there were black people in in high positions of power on that. Um, and you know, at the time, I lived at home with my parents. I think I was in this had to have been around what grad uh, grad school, so um, between 2000 and 2005. So yeah, it was grad school, and right up until I moved to Florida, so I was living at home with my parents. We had HBO, and I'm flipping through channels one night, and I happened to see Lance Reddick and a few other black actors all on the screen one of which was and it tur- turns out this was the chief of police at the time whose name I don't recall his real name um I'm sorry sure as we get into it well uh, I'll remember what his name is but uh I remember um I-, I focused on that for a moment I said huh there's a bunch of like you know halfway famous black actors all on screen here and I looked and it was HBO and I was like I wonder what they're doing and why are they dressed like police I'm going I'm going to sit and watch this this is about two Are or they three episodes. cops. <laughs> What's going on here? Um, and I was fascinated because anytime uh, you know, I'm watching TV and I see a, a majority black cast, especially you know uh, in positions of power, I'm I'm intrigued. I want to know where they're going with this sort of thing. So I stopped and I watched, and you know it turns out it was The Wire, and I got through the entire episode. I didn't understand a thing they were fucking talking about. Not a lick. Okay, was, they might as well have been speaking Mandarin Chinese. I had no clue what was going on. But that spoke to the power of the show, because despite that, I was intrigued by what I was watching. Um, and, I re- and I learned what it was, I was like, okay, I'm going to keep turn- tuning into this. And then when the show finally ended, I was hooked. By the time they get to the end, where they, where they bust Avon and his entire crew, save um, for Stringer Bell... I, I was sold on this series, and I act, and I made sure I This was one of the few times I went out and bought the box set when it came out so I can go back and watch the earlier episode. And it, from then on, um, I've been a huge fan of The Wire. Yes, I am one of those obnoxious TV nerds, TV, um, um, what do you call them, snobs. That That's one word. Talk, yes talks endlessly about The Wire and how great it is. And I I make mention of that because there's a great screen junkies uh, Honest Trailer for Breaking Bad, which is one of the reasons why I started watching Breaking Bad in the first place was I saw the Honest Trailer for it, and I thought it was hilarious. And I wanted to know what it was talking about. But it was just like, finally, a series that made TV snobs shut up about The Wire. Yeah, I'm one of those people. So, well, aside from the fact that it's got black people in it, why do you like it so much, Mark? Well, here's why. After five seasons of The Wire, the reason why I, first of all, the reason why I love it is it's got all the things in it that I enjoy uh, in my in my television viewing. Um, it was drama. It was it was uh, gritty, realistic street drama. It was about urban decay and the uh, the war on drugs. A little bit about me here. Um, a lot of my graduate work was done, was on uh, substance abuse substance abuse treatment substance, substance uh, legalization treatment versus incarceration I did a lot of uh, I did a lot of work about this, a lot of research and it was a lot, the majority of what my papers were so this has always been um, a topic of interest for me so when I saw a show that was really dedicated to what is the war on drugs, uh, what does it look like and you can use the city of Baltimore as a microcosm for the war on drugs and you got to look at what does a police investigation into a drug family look like from the, the cop side and from the drug uh drug lord side i was that's me that's me in a nutshell that's what the kind of stuff i like to watch it helped that the actors in the show are absolutely phenomenal you know there was a when when season well, that's 5 what when out.
1: you let character actors play characters and you don't have to pay them too yeah. much because they're not There big was names.
2: a television critic who was um uh, giving an interview about the wire Prior to season 5 starting And he said that if That The Wire is as realistic a show As you're going to see on TV And it still um, it, it still draws back a little bit From being too realistic And he said if The Wire ever showed What it, what, what the kinds of things they want They talk about on that show uh, As they truly are It would be too much for any one viewer It would be a well of infinite sadness um, And that's true but that's what I yeah. love about The Wire is that at least it even comes close to that. Now, last thing, and then I'll, I'll relinquish the microphone. <laughs> um, people have been asking me as of late, because if the subject had come up, why do you think The Wire is better than Breaking Bad or The Shield or whatever? I can't compare it to The Sopranos because I've never watched it. Um, something about my grandmother not thinking there's really a mafia and me wanting to honor that. I just won't watch The Sopranos. But, um, but I will watch Casino, oddly enough. One of my favorite movies.
1: Uh, one's a movie, one's a television show, one's a bunch of Joe Pesci. No wait, that's Goodfellas. It's Joe Pesci in Casino well, too.
2: Yes, he is. He gets hit in the head with a bat in the cornfield. But that's not what's important right now. Yeah, um,
1: Joe but, Pesci getting hit in the head with a bat's always important.
2: The Shield and Breaking Bad, and many, and even the just from the show you did with Pat, which was very well done, by the way, on The Sopranos. Apart from the blog talk, radio of...
1: issues dropping me every five yeah, minutes.
2: Yeah. Blog Talk thought Pat was just fine on his own Thank you very much Um, Yeah
1: well he kind of is Oh, Brief aside in the near future For everyone listening who has not heard this before The Radelich and Broadcasting Network Will be switching from being here on Blog Talk Radio To a Google Hangout format After the episodes are recorded Mark's lovely and talented wife Will be uploading them Will be changing them Uploading them to YouTube And you can find them there If you can't listen live if you're going to do find them on YouTube, please turn off ad blocker because we don't get paid for this. We do it because we love it. So if we can make a small bit of income after the fact, then, hey, we're all very happy for that. If any of us were rich and we were doing this just because we love it, I'd say I don't care because, hey, if we're rich, we don't need the extra money from this. But we're not. We're all working stiff. So when that happens, please, if you're watching us or listening on YouTube, turn off ad block. We'd all appreciate
2: it. So- Breaking Bad, The Shield, The Sopranos, many of these shows are essentially about one man's descent into hell. And while The Wire, at least in four out of the five seasons, because uh, season four was definitely not the McNulty season, um, rested comfortably on, this, on McNulty's shoulders, who we're going to talk about shortly, The Wire was about much more than one man's descent into hell. The Wire was about society's descent into hell. The Wire was about the utter bleakness bleakness, and hopelessness inherent in... Um,
1: Human condition?
2: In the in corrections, in, in law enforcement, in the war on drugs, in urban life, the plight of the black man, and, I, and I'm i dead serious when I say the plight of the black man, I'm not trying to be. When you think about where black people are in society, and I'm not going to shy away from that, sorry. I know the two white guys talking about the plight of the black man, how liberal, I don't care. It, it was a part of the show, it was an integral part of the show and I'm not afraid to talk about it. But the that show dealt with where are black people in urban society? Where are black people in the the socioeconomic schema of the United States? When you think about the amount the the population of incarcerated people, when you think about um, you know, who is mostly affected by the Rockefeller drug laws in New York, by the state and federal um, drug laws By the whole history uh, Of this country you, know, you, you, have to, you have to think about well, How has that affected black people And black culture in the United States and the, show, and the Wire dealt with all of that So why is The Wire better than all of The other shows that I just mentioned Because it's an opera It, it, it is a wide, expansive look At all of these very complex issues Going on right now In this country as seen through the eyes of a handful of characters, but ultimately the show was more than just about the characters. Whereas shows like The Wire and Breaking Bad are are only about the characters. There's no message in Breaking Bad. This is Walt's descent into hell. There was no message in The Shield. That was Vic Mackey's descent into hell. There is a there are more messages coming at you in The Wire than anything you're going to read in the newspaper. And for me, he <laughs>
1: made a season four reference. A for me, that's, with the that's
2: why the show was head and shoulders above everything else. And I you know, and my last thing I'm gonna say on this is I uh I resisted watching Breaking Bad for a long time, even though everybody in their mother thought it was the world's greatest thing. And I remember my uh my wife as I call her, my friend my good friend Sarah, who's actually my wife's best friend, said to me, She was like, You know, my husband John, is her real husband, not me who she calls husband. We're weird like that. Um, she said you know, if you love The Wire, you'll at least like Breaking Bad. And Dustin James of 411 said the same thing to me. He's like, if you love The Wire, you'll love, you'll love uh, Breaking Bad. And to them I say, either you never actually watch The Wire or you don't understand it. But either, but either way, yes, they're both great shows, and ultimately it was a good recommendation, but you're comparing, you know, Apples to Lobster, when you compare both of them and say, "Well, if you like this one, you will like that one,"
1: yeah, I don't generally approve of if-then statements when it comes to what things you'll like. So when I, when someone comes to me for an opinion on shows or I'm giving one, I if I'm drawing comparisons, like if I were to say, you know, there's here are some correlations between The Wire and Breaking Bad, or between The Wire and The Shield, or Oz and Breaking, you know, if at any point I'm trying to you know, draw connections, I tend to avoid. Well, if you liked this, then you'll like this because that's not always the case and I mean, I know people who you know, two shows like, you know, I have a friend who's a big fan of Oz but can't stand The Wire. I don't necessarily agree with that, you know, again, but again, this is personal opinion we're talking about. So I but, so you you have to be careful with recommendations like that that are predicated on if-then statements, but I'm very glad you got into the uh, you got into Breaking Bad though. For me, that show doesn't really hit you know fourth or fifth gear until you get Gus Fring in it. But we'll save that for a couple of weeks from now when we get to that one. So, you mentioned that kind of the main character, if there is one, guy who we tend to see the most throughout the season of The Wire is Jimmy McNulty, and he's played by I have the list here Dominic West. You'll notice with 90% of all of these. Um, actors that we're talking about, that they're character actors. They do very little big-name work. You might recognize a face here or there, but they're not necessarily leading stars. And that's one of the reasons this show works so well, is you don't have a bunch of guys tra- competing for the spotlight in terms of you know, who's, you know know who's just the acting and the writing. You have a bunch of character actors who, as a normal rule, are used to playing supporting roles. So when they're all supporting each other, the whole product kind of becomes elevated. But Jimmy McNulty is this really kind of egotistical, self-involved, self-destructive, self-righteous asshole. And he's constantly of the opinion that the ends justify the means. If I have to maybe shovel a little dirt here, if I can bring down Avon Barksdale, if I can bring down Stringer Bell because he escaped me, if I can do you know a couple of these things, then everything else will be worth it, then my life will continue to have some sort of meaning... I mean, there's a sequence in the third, se- second or third season where a couple of the detectives are talking with uh, the man McNulty pissed off probably more than anyone, his former major uh, Bill Rawls. and they're requesting that he be transferred off of the Marine detail. And he says, and they say, look, you know, he's a self-destructive, monumental pain in the ass screw up. Unless he's working a case, in which case he's pretty much the same. Unless. He's working a case where he actually gets to think and do some police work, and then he's actually a half decent cop. But, you know, as it stands, he's not doing anybody any good, so let him do some investigative work, and maybe everybody can benefit, and he gets to do some investigative work, but it just feeds his own downward spiral because he then becomes obsessed. He's kind of like. A little bit in that sense like um, McManus from Oz in that he try when he's got something to do he just tries so darn hard and invests so much into it that when it inevitably falls short of his unrealistic expectations he has to go get drunk and then drive his car twice into a cement pillar.
2: <laughs> I actually want to draw your attention to an even more revealing scene about McNulty's character and it's when he's um, having dinner with the political consultant Um and he's talking about how he got his wife pregnant uh, early on, and he had to drop out of college. I think it's like Malloy College. Um, so it was somewhere in Baltimore. But he was in college, and he had to drop out, and he became a cop to take care of his uh, newly pregnant wife. Um, so he never realized his full potential. And what becomes apparent in that scene is that the detective work and the need to bring down Avon and all of the things that have been covered in the previous, um, I think it's two seasons by that point, because I do want to say this was season three,
1: is that... That's three or four, because that's when you meet her. You meet uh, Miss yeah. Degasino. You know, she's the campaign manager for Tom Conchetti as he runs against the Marquette. mayor of Baltimore. But yeah, three or four, right. I can't remember which. Um,
2: but you realize that it's all self-serving. It's all a need for him to for him to be validated, and he says something to that effect in that scene. But that, realist that, that, that realistically, this is this while there, I'm sure there's some elements to it that does doing the greater good for the community and bringing down drug lords. It's really more about Jimmy McNulty, and isn't Jimmy McNulty the smartest stripper in the room?
1: Yeah, he had he's. Uh, I think they. It's either Hammer One of, or Lester Freeman, who we want will kind of dovetail this into because they're. Similar in some way, especially by the end of the series, that says, you know, he's he thinks he's the smartest guy in the room, and we've been perpetually putting him in the room with all of these dumb motherfuckers, so he's used to thinking he's the smartest man in the room, and we've done nothing to dissuade him of that illusion. But McNulty's a guy who just he obsesses over. The, I mean, at the end of the first season, when you when uh, Avon Barksdale, the target of their of the entire investigation in the first season is finally brought in. It's not on any of the big charges that he wanted him to be brought in on. He can't arrest Stringer Bell, hit Avon's second in command because he doesn't have the evidence on him. And he's just, they're able to get all of these drug dealers and, a co- and you know, Avon, who runs this entire subsection of Baltimore as far as the drug trade goes. And he's sitting in the courtroom at the end of all this, and he looks at it, and he kind of goes, "Well, what good did that do?
2: Fuck, what have I done?"
1: Which is his constant refrain: "You know, what the fuck have I done?"
2: <laughs> well, in this case, it was it was that moment of realization that he uh, he sort of blew up blew up this case with very little to show for it. So it was, "Fuck, what have I done?" Later on, it'll become, "What have I done?" As if he has amnesia and remembers nothing. How is this my fault? Yeah, how? <laughs> Why are y'all looking at me for? Why is everybody always picking on me? Yes, Jimmy McNulty evolves into Charlie Brown. He's a clown. That's
1: well, yeah, in the second season, when he gets off of the marine detail and he walks in to the investigative unit, and they're previous prior to his re- entering, they're discussing trying to get someone into this prostitution ring to, you know, get information on the madam and the smuggling ring. That's being brought in through the ports and every and all of the men actually are volunteering because hey, guess what I get to go do? And for one reason or another they're all shot down. Legitimate reasons. And then McNulty walks in and everyone just kinda looks at him and then I think it's Kima Greggs who says, Well, you need a whore to catch a whore and everyone starts laughing and McNulty having no idea what they were talking about, is looks and goes, what the fuck did I do? Right. No, you're a man whore yeah, but- and you just happen to enter at the opportune time. But
2: so that that's that's the um the tragedy of Jimmy McNulty is that he, um, he seeks validation in a career field where you are often not rewarded for doing the best job possible. Um, you know, and that, that is made abundantly clear throughout the series. I mean, and this goes back to my initial statement, that um, David Simon wrote The Wire as much an editorial on uh, the state of police work as in anything else. And one of the things that he was criticizing was that, you know, people doing good, honest detective work, people that are um, really trying hard to make things better for uh, the rest of society are often not rewarded for what they do. You know, the people who play the game are... Pl- I-, I have to tell this story really quick. The no, um, the sheriff's office that I work for, and I will not say which county it is... Um, there was a conversation about a particular deputy who is absolutely awful, just a despicable human being. And everyone, including you know, the, uh, some other deputies, just think she's, as, as a human being, just the worst. But she happens to be an African-American female, and if a, and if a position as sergeant ever opens up, and she's already passed the sergeant's exam, she'll, it was told she'll most likely get it because she's an African-American female. And there's a desire to promote from the minority ranks, especially given the population of the county we, we all work in. Never mind the fact that she's, you know, a detestable human being, and she wasn't a particularly good deputy. And well, hey, that if is she all were a lesbian, common.
1: she'd fit. If she were a lesbian, she'd fit three of the minority criteria, and then it'd be a sure thing. They'd fire <laughs> well, somebody to move her up. Again,
2: given given the county, that might make her more of an outcast. But um, you know, if this is San Francisco, fine. That that's fine. You know. No, 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 no qualms about it. Then you could be a lesbian, transsexual, and nobody would care. But um, need to not, not here, in this, here in, here in San San the sunshine state of Florida. What was, what
1: was that? Uh, you know, you need to be at least black, gay, transgender, or some other. Issue like that to even get into politics in San Francisco. If you're just a straight white guy and you're trying to run for office in San Francisco, it's never going to happen, folks.
2: Unless your last name is Pelosi.
1: <laughs>
2: but, but the point that I'm, I'm trying to drive home with that with that story is that um, you know McNulty sort of the, you know, feels the, the pangs and the, uh, the slings and arrows of a profession that isn't rewarding him for his self perceived genius. So when we meet McNulty it's um, he's on the downside of his career you know and, and he's sort of struggling with the um he he's str- how to phrase this he's he's struggling with uh, the frustration of it all you know the hopelessness he's struggling with the hopelessness of it all and he's decided that this Avon Boxdale case is the line in the sand he must bring down Avon because he's got because what else is there to do Continue to just figure out who, you know, which hump shot which hump on what street. This is getting us nowhere, and so he seeks to do the greater good, and in doing so, upsets a lot of apple carts, and in the end, he's punished, and that is yep. the tragedy of Jimmy. Uh, so
1: the other a, side you now, no, go ahead.
2: I was going to say the other side of that is, and this is a, and this is a line that Lester Freeman says later on, is that along the way he burns every relationship he has. You know, he. Is a is a terrible husband because you know in, in all of this he's also self destructive, you know some people like to cut, he likes to go you know drink and sleep with loose women, and he destroys his marriage because of it. Um, the whole you know obsession with Avon Barksdale leads with him being demoted to you know from detective to the marine unit where he's basically just fishing bodies out of water. Um, over the you know over the course of five seasons he'll. He, he, you know, as Lester Freeman says, he'll burn everything he touches, and in the end, he won't have police work to fall back on anymore. He will—he will be uh, booted from the force with nary even a pension. So, you know, Which that, is exactly that's exactly what happened. Yes, he is—he, you know, he is self-destructive um, and obsessive to a fault, and uh, that's that—that's why you know he fits in well with the theme of good men gone bad. Because I mean, he is a good person; he means well. But he can't get out of his own way,
1: and he's one of those people who you think if he had just enough self preservation instinct to play the political game even a little, he could have accomplished so much more good than he ever would just being you know an
2: asshole but at what cost, Robert Winfrey, at what cost how much is a man's soul worth? That is the question we must ask with when we come to uh Jimmy McNulty, if he could urinated
1: in front of. He, he urinated in front of an oncoming train. Are we really going to debate the worth of his soul here? <laughs>
2: well, he was drunk, and your worth of your soul is only uh, equated to how sober you really are at the time.
1: And it's not very high for him, then, because he spends a fair amount of the series drunk.
2: It's Baltimore, yo. <laughs> you know, I, Baltimore I, I just imagine that whole... Sorry. I, just, I love that line. With that I had my, wa- my, my wife, who was whiter than white. She is whiter than Casper the Ghost. I had, I have her. Occasionally, she'll just look over at me and be More "We aim to hit a nigga heard? Like,
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, bunch of thieves. You know, what's the line from the second season when Nick Sabatka is looking at the horrifyingly white—forgive uh, the phrase—wigger on the street corner, Liger. trying to. You
2: yeah, he's, wait a minute. You didn't have wiggers in your school? I mean, that wasn't. You know, that, that was like you know the Breakfast Club 2000. You had, you had, you had the, you had the wiggers and you had the jocks, and you had the goths. Um, I'm fairly sure
1: there were. I just didn't pay enough attention. Plus, again, you know, I went to school out here in Utah, so not only was it predominantly white, well, not, yeah, predominantly, more than 50%, but the people of color that I knew, again, forgive the phrasing, necessarily. I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, what's the politically correct term changes by the minute? But the, one, the black people that I knew were not... Uh, They didn't behave as you know rappers or people from the inner city because of the geographical location I was in. I just was never personally really exposed to people who use that vocabulary, that particular slang, all of that, just because of where I was. I experienced it later, of course, when I moved around a lot. But so when I saw them, when I saw people trying to be black like that, there was it it was almost a parody of wiggers because there was so little. Actual understanding of what it of what it was to kind of impersonate a black person.
2: I, for the first twelve years of my life, literally from birth to twelve, I lived in a predominantly black community, and I picked up. And and while this was the suburbs, it was the suburbs of New York City, where um, let's just talk about white flight. So World War Two ends, and uh, the, G, with the the GI Bill and um, the stipends that uh, a lot of the soldiers got. They they, they they left Little Italy and the Irish towns of New York, and they moved into uh, Western Long Island, and they bought houses. Levittown, the Levitt House, right? Um, mm-hmm. One of the early, earliest like planned uh, suburban communities. So you had um, a bunch of white people living, you know, settling essentially Western Long Island, and then as black people um, started to make money, now that the white people had done left Manhattan and Brooklyn and Queens. Um, you had black people filling in, and they started to make money, and they wanted a better life for their children, so they all move into Western Long Island, or, or, right alongside the white people, who then pick up stakes and move further east. <laughs> but, so just kept on going, and eventually there was nowhere left to go because Montauk's too expensive and too, <coughs> and too far out. But <coughs> um, but I grew up in an area where white flight had um, left nothing but um, sub, uh, a suburban landscape populated by, uh, by black people, by middle-class black folk. Uh, and it just so happens that my grandmother sold real estate in that neighborhood, so that's when my parents bought their first house, because that's what they could afford. I picked up the urban uh, street slang of the black people around me, who, of course, picked it up from people from the city. And I remember when my mother got sick and tired of me sounding like a black kid, she moved my white ass, to uh, eastern Long Island, further east Long Island, into Massapequa, home of Jerry Seinfeld, D. Snyder and Stuttering John of Howard Stern fame. And um, I, I walk into school, junior high, and I'm just surrounded by white kids, not a black kid in sight. It was a very new experience for me. And they listened to me talk, and they were like, do you think you're black or something? And I'm like, no, it's just where I'm from, yo, bitch. No, I wasn't, I, I wasn't that kid from Breaking Bad. But... Um, the, the, but a few years now, I finally, after a few years of this, learned to talk like a white kid again. You know, I, I'm rehabil- my speech has been rehabilitated. And no sooner than I start talking like all the stupid white kids around me, now the white kids are talking like black kids, and I mean all of them. Okay, that's that's why the whole thing about wiggers. That my whole school went white like wigger at one point. They were wearing baggy pants and pot leaf shirts, and I'm just like, fuck. Fuck every last one of you. I was like this before it was cool. And oh, you, so made you were the change. hipster. I really was. I <laughs> brought the culture. <laughs> now that I've hijacked your podcast, to talk about my uh, my, my autobiography, please continue. Uh,
1: well, hey, I'm sure it'll sell dozens of copies across the country when you finally publish it. But yeah, as you mentioned, this series deals with every level of kind of the infrastructure of the city of Baltimore. It's not focused any very much on a whole lot of people. And you get so it I mean it covers so much ground and touches on so many issues. I mean the first season you deal specifically with the police work and the drug trade. The second season branches out into dealing with
2: Oh excuse well, me. Well the loss of the American dream. The second episode yeah, but, is what happens to middle to what happens to middle class to working class America when working class is replaced by um foreign economies yeah. and robots. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then in the third season, you start getting into uh, the school system, and then there's the politics. No, 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 no. no. School is four, politics
2: is third. Season three is the war on drugs, specifically. And should we or should we not legalize? That's what season three tackles. It also starts to tackle the uh, the political schema of um, stateside politics. It's season four that you get into the education.
1: Yeah, and then five when you branch out a little further and you start including the joys of uh consumer economy and specifically mass you know media media consumption and all of the fun stuff that goes along with that because there's a fair amount of it. But moving up, but you know, again, we deal with a lot of people and a lot of them tend to kinda of like McNulty in that they're real you know, there's very few black and white as far as this goes. You have Good people and bad people, but they're all fully kind of fleshed out characters. None of them are strictly evil. There are a few, but not too many of them. And kind of a reverse side to McNulty, uh, probably the most famous character to come out of The Wire, uh, the Scarface bandit, uh, Omar Little, and he's
2: my favorite character in all of television.
1: Yes, you and President Obama. That he's gone on record in saying that Omar Little is his favorite character from The Wire, which is his favorite television so- show, etc., cetera. Et cetera. So, go ahead and talk a little bit about uh, Omar Little, the first homosexual drug bandit in television history.
2: <laughs> Omar is a great, colorful character. Um, you're right in that he's sort of the polar opposite of McNulty. Um, what what can you say about Omar? Omar drips cool, first of all. You know, um, I, I said this about O'Reilly on the Oz podcast, where you know, he's such a he's such a low life, despicable sociopath, but he's just so dang cool. Well, that was Omar, but he brought it to a whole other level. Um, Omar's character is a, as you said, a homosexual street urchin who robs drug dealers and he would initially have nothing to do with the police except for the fact that because of his um profession as a professional as a uh, as, as a dr- as a um, mugger of drug dealers, he gains the ire of the Avon Barksdale drug family, and they decide that they're going to make an example out of him. And to do that, they kidnap and torture and eventually murder uh, Omar's lover, who is beautiful, as he's... And because of that, you know, Omar is a throwback. He's sort of the, the last of the red-hot, old-school uh, street thugs. And he lives by a code. And it's funny because I've often heard uh, it was said in Oz and it was said in other places where it was like, you know, so-and-so lived by a code that nobody pays attention to any, any, anymore. Uh, you hear a lot of guys who play mafia characters talk about stuff like that. You know, the code is dead. You know, if you live by the code, you'll you'll end up dying by it now. And he he's a throwback to that era and, you know, on that sort of code of, uh, of thieves. And he looks at Avon as being somebody who has upended – that code, and that he's, you know, and what little culture, what little honor there was among thieves in the streets of Baltimore, uh, he feels that Avon Barksdale is somewhat of a threat, and at the end of the day, it was just about revenge. You know, Avon got his lover, so he wants to help, so he wants to bring down Avon, and he sees McNulty and the Baltimore Police Department as as an end to that means. So you know he becomes a witness in um, the gang the trial, which is essentially one of Avon's is. guys who is, I think, Sticky Fingers, or uh, yeah, Sticky uh, Fingers Bay from Bay, I um, think. Bird. Onyx uh, shoots shoots a witness, and he goes to trial for shooting that witness, and uh, Omar is going to testify that he was the one, in fact, who shot him, and he's doing this just to get back at Avon, you know, no other reason. But
1: oh yeah, he's lying
2: through throughout his teeth. the series. Um, we see him deal with. We see him beca- becoming a continual continual thorn in the side of Avon, and uh, you see Avon and Stringer Bell try to get him, and it's just a. It's kind of like Schillinger and Beecher. They just keep doing stuff to each other, and nobody is better off, at, you know, uh, for it in the end. And he also has one of the most anticlimactic deaths in television history. But it was so, and it, its anticlimacticness, cl- it was. Poignant. If The Wire is a a picture into what it's like to live in these streets, you know, something that my wife and I were actually talking about tonight, um, tonight uh, on the news here in Tampa, there was a series of home invasions near um, the University of South Florida, where this guy from the neighboring county came in and um, um, tied up and robbed and sexually assaulted a number of people living in a series of apartments around the school campus. And, I, you know, we were talking about, you know, the one thing I, I truly fear and have sort of um, willed myself to always be prepared for is in case there's ever a fucking home invasion, you know, and what I'm going to do to protect my family. Um where's I going with that? I was connecting that to Omar, and I don't remember what
1: Well, oh, because yeah, Omar's death is just some, he even sees the small kid that shoots him in the back of the head. Robert, me a out cigarette. Here. Uh, He even, oh, Omar sees Tommy, that Tommy, can you hear me? Uh, did I get cut off? You know what? I bet I did. Dang okay. it. Hang well, on. It let me...
2: has gone to radio silence for some odd reason. I know Blog Talk Radio is still having um, issues tonight with uh, sound dropping out, which I'm sure if you hear this on playback, you won't hear people dropping out, I think, but we can't hear each other at times. So I'm going to try to get myself back on track here with Omar. Oh, I was talking about the, the – okay, so – Anything can happen, right? And that's where I was doing the, the comparisons with my, you know, living in fear of a home invasion. Um, you know, whereas you know these people living on campus at USF, you know, never thought that for a minute somebody would kick open their door, tie them up, and assault their women. Um, hey, can
1: you hear me, Mark? Am I back?
2: Now I can. Now good. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so my it, audio got dropped,
1: courtesy of Blog Talk.
2: Yeah, that's gonna. That's been happening all night. Um, yeah. What I, I was, was about well, to say is. I tried to bail you out by
1: saying that, you know, Omar even sees this little, like, eight, nine-year-old kid in the grocery, in the, you know, convenience store with him. Right, right. Looks over and sees him and then just ignores him, and that little kid pulls out a gun and shoots him in the back of the head.
2: Yes, that's where I was going with thank you. You know, 20 minutes later, we finally get there. Um, But, like, as an audience member, you don't see that coming. Certainly the characters don't see that coming. And the character that shoots him had no motivation for doing so other than uh, he was there at the time. The kid was looking for somebody to shoot, and there was Omar, not paying any attention. So, yeah, so I, that's why I said it was, it, was a, it was a tale of the street. It was poignant in that it tells you that really anything can happen. Um, but it was also anticlimactic because this guy had managed to escape the ire of not one but two different drug lords who were out to kill him. And he got him and- every single time. Yeah, he. it seemed
1: like you could never actually get to Omar. I mean, you'd send people after him. He killed Stringer Bell. He hijacked an entire enormous container full of heroin from Stanfield. It's just like, now, there's no way anybody's ever actually going to get this guy. And if they do, it's going to be a hail of gunfire, and a lot of people dead on both sides. And instead, it's this little kid who was just earlier... I can't remember if it was that season or a couple of seasons beforehand, but who earlier was debating with a bunch of his friends about who got to play Omar in their little and you know their game that they were playing, and he just shot Omar in the head. Like, yeah, wait, that's a little kid. And to kind of compensate for the incongruity of it, all of the drug dealers on the street and everything begin concocting these elaborate stories about how many people and what it took to take down Omar and how he went down firing an AK-47 in a blaze of glory. But no, he was my, just shot in the head by a nine-year-old kid.
2: My favorite Omar bit, and there's a bunch. Actually, I have two favorite Omar scenes in all of The Wire, and they are um, very different from each other. And the first one is he's with his new boyfriend, and he goes to get Honey Nut Cheerios. And, he's, never find- and he walks out of his... huh.
1: It, that's a non-running gag there. He loves Honey Nut Cheerios, but it seems like he can never find them. He has a hard time finding them.
2: Yeah, they, they never get the Honey Nut Cheerios when he goes to buy them. In any case, he walks out of his home, such as it is, and he's got on his silk pajamas, and he walks down the street, and as he's walking down the street, people yell, It's Omar, yo! And they just they just throw drugs at him and run. And so he mm. comes back to the house. He's got a bag full of drugs that he just throws on the table with utter disdain, and he looks over, and, uh, and the kid looks at him, and he goes, they were out of Cheerios? And he, looks, he goes, I don't even want this. It was, the yeah. ult- it was one of those ultimate, like, I, ha- you know, I have conquered the world, and yet I am unhappy. It was an Alexander the Great moment. He just laid on his rock and saw that there was no more world left to conquer. And I think that's when he gets the idea for one last big score. Because what has happened is he's now become so infamous. He's become so legendary in the streets of Baltimore that there's no challenge in it anymore. There's no, you know, it was funny. I just got finished watching the first half of season four of Oz, and Adebisi says much the same thing to Saeed. He says, I've gotten everything I've wanted, and it's not enough. uh, You know, I'm still trapped here in Oz. And here you have Omar, very similar. I've done all of these terrible things, and now people are so afraid of me. There's no challenge in this for me. There's nothing to it. I I I need more. There has to be, you know, as Jack Nicholson once said, is is this as good as it gets. And that's where he gets the idea to do one big score and then retire, and that's how he ends up hijacking, you know, a Titanic shipment of heroin that he sells back but to Prop, the uh,
1: proposition.
2: Yeah, for like billions of dollars. <laughs> and he does retire after that. He is out of the game for a while until, until uh, they drag him back in.
1: Until Marlowe Danfield's crew, torture and kill his mentor, Butchie, and at that point, he's like, okay, now I'm going to come after you guys, and even after he falls out of a window and breaks his leg, he's still hobbling around with a made-up crutch from a broom, and people still are terrified. Anytime he goes up to somebody, he's like, oh crap, it's Omar, and they will throw the drugs at him and run away, because that's what he's after.
2: Yeah, his legend became bigger than the man.
1: Although I, I got to say, anybody who would show up to court wearing what he was wearing and then proceed to own the scumbag lawyer with, well, I've got the shotgun and you've got the briefcase—that's
2: a lot of people's favorite scene with. But uh, that, that that leads me to my other favorite scene of his. Um, so, like I said, there's two. There's that whole bit where he just looks at the table and says, "I don't want. I don't even want this anymore." Um, but the other one. And I was actually – I told this story in sort of jest on a Casual Heroes podcast because we were supposed to be talking about wrestling and to, um, to essentially harass Chris Evans, who is the host. Uh, myself and Jed just are talking about The Wire incessantly. But um, it's the scene where uh, Bunk confronts – we haven't talked about Bunk yet, but Bunk is McNulty's longtime homicide partner in um, Snappy Dresser. And he goes to confront – was
1: born in pinstripes.
2: Yes, he was. Um, what do you what do you call a man who pays too much attention to his wardrobe? An adult. So <laughs> so Bunk goes to confront Omar because Omar has essentially uh, terrorized a potential witness into uh, hushing. So that completely screws up Bunk's case. So he goes to confront Omar about it, and Omar is basically like, "No one's going to talk to you." He's he, essentially what little. Um, what little rapport they had, what little uh, peace they had between them has now dissolved, and they've gone back to being antagonists. And Omar's basically like, look, you can question as many people as you want. No one will talk to you because I say so. And Bunk launches into a tirade at Omar, and the sum total of it is what I sent you on Twitter. He said, we used to have a community. Now all we have is bodies, and it's because of predatory motherfuckers like you. And well, those two without- actually
1: had a history, I mean, they went to high school together, more or less.
2: Yeah, they, went to, uh, they, the they first went to the same school.
1: So they came up in the same community and everything, and Bunk has been trying to better the world with his pinstripe suits and his old lacrosse sweatshirts that he wears on occasion when he doesn't feel like dressing up. And Omar has decided to maintain the parasitic struggle that exists within that partic- that you know urban lifestyle.
2: But what I wanted to draw attention to was the acting. The, the Michael something or other. Um, Williams, I think. Michael K. Williams, yeah. Michael K. Williams is an extraordinary actor, and that scene should be, you know, if, it, if it, whatever part he ever reads for, he should just send them that clip. Because there is more acting going on as he just sits there on the bench, and I'm going to use the phrase well of infinite sadness again, but that's what it is. He He just... Without changing his facial expression, it's all in his eyes, and, of course, the drool. Um, You see this enormous well of guilt rising up in him. He doesn't move, he doesn't say anything, he doesn't change. It's all in his eyes, and it's extraordinarily powerful. And you see that he knows Bunk is right, and he doesn't know what to do with that. The only person in the entire series to ever shake him at his core... And really get to him, do him damage that he has no answer for. You know, because everybody else shoots at him, kills someone he loves, whatever, and he and you know, and he seeks revenge and he gets revenge to a measure, one way or another. This is the only time in five seasons of The Wire where somebody pierces him to the core and he has no response. And it's my again, one of my favorite Omar scenes in five serious because of that. Because of the acting, but also because of the realization that, and you don't get this much. You don't really get this in real life. When you confront sociopaths, you, they tend not to reflect back on what they've done and go, you know what, you're right, I'm terrible. You know, what you get is a lot of excuse making and blame. For once, you you know, you saw somebody um, you saw somebody cut a sociopath to the quick and the sociopath go, you're right, I'm terrible. And for me, it's powerful. It's also completely fictional, but it was a powerful moment. Powerful television. A powerful, dramatic television in a series of hell. Well,
1: Omar's level of sociopathy is a fair deal less than Stringer Bell's, for example, who doesn't seem to care too much what he what he does or who he hurts to do it.
2: Yeah, Stringer Bell's actually closer to McNulty than, than Omar is in terms of the character. Yeah, structure.
1: well, and, that and Stringer Bell seems to have this sincere desire to stop being a drug lord and go into legitimate business. And well, personally I mean he's another one who's
2: driven he's another one who's driven by self-validation. You know, they it, they talk about him him too. As a youngster he wanted to be a business owner. And he wanted to be better than the he wanted to be better than the community he grew up in. And in order to get to that place he had to make some very very bad decisions and now he's trying to um maneuver his way out of it. And what he comes to realize uh, up until his untimely death is that the choices he made have done the choices that he has made has dug himself a hole too deep, and there 's no getting out of it. He will forever be associated with drugs and everything that goes with it
1: yeah it's his death sequence is rather powerful in that he tries to negotiate with both Omar little and brother mo Mose- I, I can never pronounce his name right
2: brother Ma me-
1: yeah the member of the Muslim brother the Islamic brotherhood comes down from New York to do some dirty work for Avon and winds up getting shot by Omar before he and Omar realize that they're they were both uh, done wrong by Stringer so they get revenge on him. He tries to negotiate first and then as soon as he realizes that no I can't get out of this, my the hole that I've dug is too deep. It's just well then get on with it and finish it.
2: <laughs> that's that's how I'm going out Robert Winfrey. <laughs> I have two people uh, pointing guns at me. I'm just going to be able to get on with it, motherfucker.
1: Yeah, and, but, you know, Omar is interesting in that he's not, you know, necessarily a huge sociopath like some others are. Uh, I mean, if you want to, you know, I think the most sociopathic person in that whole series is introduced later, and that's uh, Marlo Stanfield, who just doesn't seem to care about anything.
2: Oh, no, that whole I crew is ridiculous. A- Avon's crew, they, it was about drugs and, and, and territory and... um you know expanding money the business and, and, and money right they were they were your traditional drug lords this group drugs were almost a secondary uh a secondary desire secondary motivation they they seemed to be completely driven by murdering people they were almost they were almost like a group of that's why season 5 is so funny because you know, McDoubley even says he was just like your serial killer is Marlowe, for Christ's sake. Do you know how many people he's murdered and shoved into row houses? Why does it have to be this sexy story? You know, with with a twist. It is what it is. He's murdering people at at, at a rate faster than any serial killer. Yep. I mean, when you think about the kinds the kinds of murders that are portrayed in seasons four and five, you know, you've got uh, Bodie's fat friend. You know who who doesn 't say anything to anybody doesn 't give anybody up and yet is still murdered I mean they just they just kill they just run through Baltimore uh murdering everybody that Marlowe says go kill, and they do it without even an ounce of regret the one that, the one that shows any kind of thought about it, any kind of conscience is Michael, who turns into Omar by the end of season five
1: yeah, he goes from well, he's the one we're introduced to in season four when they get into the school system because he's a student of poor Agent Prezbeluski. If anyone was never meant to be a police officer, that poor guy, <laughs> great mind uh, for detail, great mind for patterns. Give that man a firearm and the whole thing just kind of goes to hell. Well,
2: you he always got the feeling with uh, with Prezbeluski that he was being punished for the sins of his family. I mean, he marries um, major... Polish face, uh, his daughter. Uh,
1: Volchek, I and, think.
2: Yeah, Major Volchek, and um, you always know, got the feeling that he didn't really ever want to be a cop, you know, and that the he first and that, that is only the Avon Barksdale detail in season one that he even becomes remotely interested in what he's doing for the first time, and from there he he says, ah, there's something here that I can then do, but but prior to that, you again, you got the impression that this was not what he wanted to be when he grew up.
1: No, he seems happier like teaching people you know, when he's teaching inner city youths math projects and everything and trying to reach a couple of them.
2: Yeah, he Principal Lucy became a much more interesting character in season four when he becomes um, a middle school. He's much more human. I mean certainly when he when he's starting off shooting up uh, abandoned cars in season one and nearly blinding a kid with a gun with his gun. Um you know, <laughs> so the, the a long way through that first three season. Um, he's, he's well, then he follows that up
1: inter- with shooting a police officer to be <laughs> forced to retire.
2: Yes. Um, and for my next magical trick, yeah, he um, he's a much more interesting character in season four and five. You know, as he's trying to. I mean, clearly he's not from the culture that he's teaching, and yet he's you know trying and trying and trying and trying again to reach these kids because it's important to him, and he and he's much more um intrinsically internally motivated to try to reach these children um than anything he was doing even when he was when he was excited by the work is, so um you know I like President Luthien in 5 not not so much in seasons 1 through 3 so though so the the sequence where he's putting together the bulletin board to Johnny Cash's walk the line is uh, is one of my favorites of the entire series
1: yeah he uh, and he's so sad when he has to take down the board at the end of the first season. <laughs> He's like, wait, I was actually doing something useful and now I get to go back to being a nobody.
2: (laughs) I worked so hard on this.
1: And you know, speaking of people who are perpetually the butt of everyone's joke, you know, we should probably talk a little bit about poor Ziggy and his duck that he kills with alcohol. But Ziggy got on my nerves the very moment he stepped on screen and didn't really become a little bit sympathetic for me until he stopped trying to be something he wasn't and he got that pet duck that he liked, and then killed because he was feeding. He was. He took it to the bar with the other Steve drawers uh, from the docks, and they gave it alcohol. And you can't give a small du- a duck a bunch of alcohol and expect it not to die of alcohol poisoning in the very near future.
2: Well, Ziggy's character was he lived in he lived in the great big shadow of his father, who was a god among men on the docks, and he never could quite escape that. And he's um. He's another self-destructive character, where he's given a, he's given opportunities to better himself, and he just chooses not to. It's like he's come to the conclusion somewhere along the line that he isn't worth anything. He'll never be as good as his father, so he doesn't even try. Um, and he seeks validation through being, you know, sort of a clown among the other guys. And as long as he can make them laugh, you know, at least he's found his usefulness. But um, I'm always fascinated when I when I rewatch season two of the conversation he has with his dad when he's talking about what he remembers. You know, and he remembers um, something falling on a longshoreman, and he remembers um, he remembers uh, protests, you know, and just these different stories that he's rattling off. You know, sort of an admission that this is his life. It's not the life he would have chosen for himself, but it's the life that he got, and he accepts the consequences of that life, being you know, being in the shadow of his father and all. And I don't think uh, his father really knew what to make of that scene, or what to make of him. I think he he had so much going on with him in season two that I don't think he ever quite understood Ziggy. You know, just he he. It, it was a typical father son relationship. Why, you know, I've given you every opportunity to be, to be better than me, and the son just throwing it back at him and said, "Who asked you for anything, Dad?" You know. It's, yeah. Um, it's the it's the kind of antagonism that only a father and son can know. Um, and it's tragic because, in the end, uh, he goes, for other reasons, he goes over the edge and shoots somebody and, you know, just, and he goes to prison for murder. And that's what he does. And sort of he accepts his lot in life as, okay, I killed a guy and this is my punishment.
1: Well, you know, I probably would have killed that particular Greek guy too because, hey, who needs the Greeks? <laughs> Especially in modern times. I mean, come on. You know,
2: everything they gave
1: to us early on Greek history, art, architecture, great wonderful contributions to human history. Nowadays, not so much.
2: Um I will tell you this, he almost reaches Aaron Paul level of annoying in, in season 2. Almost.
1: He does. He's, He's redeemed, really does.
2: he is redeemed in the last couple of episodes as the gravity of all that's happened to him um makes him a much more serious person. But it's kind of like, you know, where I'm watching this 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 last half of, you know, this 5.2 Season of Breaking Bad, and they're trying to make Aaron Paul a much more serious character and everything, and they're like, it just doesn't work for me. Sorry, doing the Christian Bale Batman voice, talking about uh, uh, Walter White being the devil and everything, isn't really doing it for me. <laughs> like, I still don't take you seriously. Whereas Ziggy just looks at his dad and says, "Yeah, I've I've done what I've done. Whatever, whatever happens, happens." You know, he's got a black eye, he looks like shit, and he looks at his father and goes, "It's what I deserve."
1: Well, I mean, a guy like powerful, him in prison is just not going to work. Huh? A guy like him in prison is just not a good thing. I mean, he's slight, he's not very, you know, he can't fight. He's not a strong personality. You know, it's just it's not him in prison is just not a good thing. He the first time you see him and he's, you know, beat to crap from what everyone else has done to him because he's now the weak, the low guy on the totem pole in a pretty unforgiving societal structure as far as prison goes. But if since we've talked about, you know, Ziggy, we need to talk about his father who is kind of the quintessential good person who makes bad decisions in that he's a big wig in a union and he the union's going belly up. Uh the whole the whole dockyard industry, shipbuilding, unloading ships, the whole heavy industry and manufacturing in America is kind of dying. It's being replaced by automation and pencil-pushing jobs. And to keep his union afloat, he begins doing illegal work for the Greeks. He helps them smuggle stuff in, he takes money for it, and just slowly things start spiraling out of control as they find a bunch of dead bodies.
2: Well, let's talk about that for a second. The agreement is he will allow the Greeks to push um, drugs and whatever else through... Uh, the docks, as long as it's you know not weapons of mass destruction or anything like that. I mean, as long as it's just uh, drugs and other random paraphernalia, they're they're willing to do this so that he can save money, so that he can use that money to lobby um, the district council um, to do some renovations to the pier so that more jobs can be had for the union members. This is all about saving the union. But it's sort of a he's, a, he's a he's willing to bend morally so long as he doesn't have to bend too far, and then he has to bend too far. And by that I mean they never tell him they're bringing prostitutes over in a can, and that is exactly what they do. And one of them, and they, and one of them is killed and thrown overboard, the rest are suffocated. And that's what gets season two off and off and rolling. And you see it, the, the the anger in that. It was like, hey, it was one thing when it was heroin, but it's a whole other thing when you bring over dead girls. Now, what what kind of game are you playing at here? And and you realize with him that like, this is not about drugs. He's not attempting to be. This isn't a Walter White here. He's not attempting to be a drug kingpin. He doesn't really care what. I mean, he'd rather not know. And he says that he's like, I don't want to know what you're bringing over here. I, I don't. Just paying. Just tell me which can it is and how much you're paying me. I have other things to do and bigger fish to fry and he feels like he has to do this in order to in order to um for the greater good he has to create a life for this for for the culture around him the culture that he's a part of that's in his blood you know the way that he that he has fed his family for the last 20 to 30 years um and that his brother has fed his family so he's feeling like He's been forced into this position, but at no point was this ever about the illegal activity itself. It was always about the greater good. And then all of that is challenged and thrown into flux by virtue of a can of dead girls, which he is livid. His life is at risk. His whole lifestyle is at risk. You know, the union is at risk because of that. And and um, you know that that anger about it is. Uh, what you see in him in the first couple of episodes.
1: And, yeah, and he just can't seem to dig himself out of that hole. He agrees to cooperate to try and help his son, and at the end of that, the Greeks find out that he might be snitching, so they kill him. And, yes, had he not
2: listened to had he not listened to Nick and had he just had a lawyer show up, this would have been a completely different ending to season, two. It always irked me that the Greek got away. I, I, for some odd reason, I know it was realistic, but for some odd reason it always bothered me that that case wasn't more successful than it was and that the Greek got away. But I guess that's, that's the wire for you. Well, that whole, my almost Chuck all of that said,
1: Greek crew got away. Yeah. And that's mean, that's you my had the Greek Chuck with his hat n- and his mustache, and you had uh, Vondrus, and he like, Almost all of them got away. There was uh, Gelkis that was killed by Ziggy, but pretty much everyone else, well, Aton and the other guy went to jail, but almost all of them just were able to get out of the country before the investigation came down.
2: Yep. As my friend once, I mean, you see the final montage, and you see drugs going one way and girls going the other. He looked at me when we were watching, and he goes, so the lesson in all of this is nothing stops drugs and whores. I said, no, Chuck, nothing stops drugs and whores.
1: Well, it would seem, but... You know, one of the things that I like about this is that, the, is that there are characters that change. You know, There is growth, there is change, and there's two that I kind of want to talk about, kind of in tandem. Uh, one is Lester Freeman, who we're introduced to in the first season, because he's assigned to the junk detail that is the investigative unit, because he currently works in the pawn shop division, after he aggravated some people higher up and was sent there as punishment for rocking the boat politically yes
2: yeah, he is the and ghost of
1: christmas future he worked there for thirteen years and four months and he is not shy about reminding you about the four months No. Uh, i think we should talk about him and in the same because another another character who changes over the course of this series is the lieutenant who gets assigned this detail uh... cedric daniel because he's a very yep. ambitious person at the beginning he wants to move up the chain of command his wife has political ambitions. He wants to be a major or a commissioner. I mean, he wants to move up in the world. And by the end of the series, he has changed a fair amount in that he gives up his ambition because he is so sick of all of the corruption, old, of all the stuff that goes on with it. And he becomes yeah. a criminal defense attorney by the very end.
2: Um, so, so I guess we'll, we'll start with Lester. Uh, as I said, he's the ghost of Christmas Future. He is what McNulty will become if he does not, and what ultimately what McNulty does become if McNulty does not change his ways. Um, he is a cautionary tale, and he is uh, redeemed and, you know, and brought out of his bleak future uh, by virtue of the fact that uh, they needed bodies, and you know he saw an opportunity to be useful and just sort of snowballed from there. But Lester Freeman is your guide through the minutiae of detective. The Wire, as I said at the onset of this podcast, was you know a um, a detailed look at what it is to work a complex ca- uh, a complex case. You know, there's lines in there like you follow the money and things like that. And so what Lester what Lester is um, is sort of your guide for the audience to see what is it like to really work a case where you have to sit on houses and sit on people and do paperwork and follow uh, money trails and where it's going to lead you. And, you know, it is the antithesis of what you see in any movie starring The Rock. You know, it, you know, where everyone's running around pulling guns and things are blowing up and it looks, my God, who wouldn't want to be a cop if that's what it was like? Of course, if you ever talk to real police officers, they will tell you that it's much like The Wire. You know, and and it and I love characters like um, fuck. What are they? Carver and um, Dominic Lombanzardi's character, Herc. Herc, yes. Herc and Carver, who are your examples of police? You know, who you know want it to be all about you know thugging and bugging. You know, they want they want to run out there in the streets and bust heads, and it's all about bullying people and making small, meaningless busts of small, meaningless drug dealers. Um, Well, Lester Freeman is is the antithesis of that, and it's, you know, he's there to show you that their way is wrong. Um, And that is what, I guess, uh, what I was saying was that that's what a lot of police officers will tell you, is that it's more, when done correctly, it's more like Lester Freeman's way. When done incorrectly, it's it's the and Carver way. Um, But, you know, one of the things that David Simon wanted to do with The Wire was, you know, was show how, um, you know, listening in and wiretaps and how to get a wiretap and how all of these elements were important. And, you know, you just can't set up a microphone and start listening in on people's conversations. You have to, there's a whole legal rigmarole you have to go through. That's why I laugh when people are like, oh, we live in Big Brother times and the NSA is always listening in or whatever, you know, like my friend and I joke about this constantly. You know, we always have to say, and to the NSA agents currently listening to this phone call, da 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 it, it really isn't like that, you know. It's, you, you, you have well, not to go at the state and show level. probable I mean, cause for why this is useful, and it has to be. Well, yeah,
1: at the state level, you're right. When you get into the Patriot Act and what you can do on a federal level, it might be different. But by and large, yeah, I mean you can't just stick a microphone in some. You know, uh, the character of uh, Beatty in the second season, when observing just how much paperwork and whatnot they have to go through in order to. Get a wiretap. She looked at all of it because you have the uh, you have the U.S. attorney, you have the attorney there, and you have all of them filling out their paperwork, and they have to go through the judge who insists that they install a air conditioner on the third floor of his house before he'll sign. And just the amount of work that goes into getting that is just
2: but it's insane. there for your own good, Robert Winfrey. It's there so that a police officer can say, I don't like Robert Winfrey's face. So I'm going to start listening to his podcast and see if he says anything I can arrest him for. You know, it's it's there for your own protection. Um and yes, on the one side it may cost you in terms of time, you know, if if you can't if you can't get it and you know, a sufficient amount of time you might lose the lead that you're trying to listen in on, you know, things like that, but that's but I, you know, you always want to err on the side of caution and freedom and not, you know, get to the point where It's too easy to get a wiretap, and now nobody has any freedom anywhere.
1: Oh yeah, I agree. It's just—it was funny for you know Amy Ryan to sit there and go, "Man, I thought I knew about paperwork," because she's just a dock patrol. All she does is work on the docks. She's a she drives around in a car and polices the docks for. And she only got into that because it was a pay bump, and she got benefits from her old job. She's not.
2: Yeah, she's big into police work or anything.
1: Yeah, she's not really a a cop.
2: Right. Um, you know, port authority people—they walk around the subways and the trains and the uh, and the docks—and they make sure that Al Qaeda isn't uh, planting bombs or anything, or uh, drugs are coming over. <laughs> that's that's all she does. So she's asked to sort of make this monumental leap into being a det- into de- into a detective because of the um, this particular case sort of sprawls across multiple agents, which is a which is a funny scene in and of itself, as the agencies sort of kick it around and say, "Well, it's your responsibility." Like, "Oh, it's yours," you know. Um, Nobody wants the responsibility
1: of 14 homicides that they're unlikely to close.
2: Right. Um, but back to back to Lester. So through Lester, like I said, you're given a tour of what it's like to get a wiretap, what the importance of the wiretap is, and how it plays into the larger scheme of things. Um, and he's and and while he's also a cautionary tale, and you don't want to upset the apple cart, or you will be thrown in a basement behind a door that says "Beware of the leopard." Um, it, it's all. He's also um, in Lester, you see the story of what it's like to be a true detective, and, and what all the and what all the you have to do to close a case uh, the correct way. And so he's he's a fun character. He's the um, he's the conscience, I think, of the group for the most part. Um, I think he's the you know I, I call him the Ghost of Christmas Future. You he, uh, know he's 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 a lot of things. He's Jiminy Cricket. He's you know he's there to tell Herc and Carver. Um, you have to grow up and be real police at some point. He's there to tell Kima, look, you don't want to become uh, McNulty with a vagina. That's that's bad all around. He's there to tell McNulty, you are a terrible human being, and if you continue down the path you're going, you're going to lose everything. You know, and you don't have much left, so fucking keep it together. Uh, and he plays off bunk really well, too. So Lester Freeman is a fun character to watch.
1: Yeah, and again, he is you know kind of stuck on cedric daniels because this the whole first season their unit is put together because mcnulty goes to a judge who he knows and complains about avon barksdale and how no one's actually doing anything about it the judge then ups then being a judge since judges can do pretty much whatever they want goes to the police commissioner and says what the heck what's going on here and i want something done about this i want it done yesterday and they go okay we'll put together a detail will do something about it, they give Cedric Daniels this detail, and they assign him a bunch of humps. You have the drunk guy, you have the two drunks, including the one who gets punched out by a teenager and then claims retirement, you have the other one who goes into alcohol training, you have Chris who shot up his own police car, and you have Lester Freeman who's been in the pawn shop unit writing index cards and filing them for 13 years and four months. And this is all very unhappy for Lieutenant Daniels at the time he's a lieutenant because his goal is to move up the chain of command. He's on the short list for the next major, for the major spot that it, that's about to come up. And his hope is I can do this fast. I'll get a couple of drug busts, and the judge will go away. Irvin Burrell, who's the deputy commissioner at the time, will be happy with me, and I'll move up the ladder.
2: Real and quick, I want to talk of, a little bit about Yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say just real quick because you had mentioned um, police commissioner Burrell. You know, Burrell throughout uh, almost every season of The Wire is sort of seen as this dope. You know, he's he's seen as you know crooked and you know he's at the uh, he's at the feet of the mayor and you know he it's people like him making the big decisions. That's the reason why the police department's so fucked up. And he makes a lot of terrible decisions in the first season. It's like ah, oh, we want to cut this investigation uh, short and we don't want to you know we don't want to put too much into it and you know he's sort of made, he's made the scapegoat for everything that's wrong with the police department and then it's not until i think the 4th or 5th season where um he's being uh uh forced out of his position for one reason or another so that they can um promote Rawls and uh, and and event and groom um Cedric, um Daniels for that position so that there can be some real change in the police force as as promised by uh New, new Mayor Carchetti, But he says something that sort of turns everything you've ever learned about this character on its head. By the way, he was one of the people I was referring to when I said I saw a bunch of black guys on screen. It was Frankie... F- it was um, Commissioner Burrell, it was Daniels, and um, it might have been Freeman at the time. In any case... And he, uh, for, oh,
1: for the record, he's played by Faison. Frankie Faison, Frankie Faison
2: yeah. yes. Um, I believe he's
1: related to he, Donald uh, Faison of... Fame of Scrubs, because he plays Turk okay. on the television show. I think so. I mean, can't be a very common last name. I don't know. You talk. Um, I'll look it up.
2: So he's uh, he's talking to Daniels, or Rawls. No, he's talking to Rawls. And he says, you know, everyone thinks that I was so bad at this and, you know, whatever. He's just like, keep in mind something. Every day you're going to get a new directive. Today it's, you know, one day it's um, stop the drug deals. The next day it's clean up the streets. The day after that is run the whores out out of the city. He's like, keep that in mind. Every day you're serving a new master with a new dictate. Makes it kind of hard to keep any long-term decisions going, long-term plan. I know, I like wrecking that that bit of dialogue there. But the point that he's trying to make, and I think it's very poignant, is he was a victim of the culture in which he was working. And, yes, he served... You know he served the mayor and he, you know, and he had uh, various functions that ale- that unfortunately made it very very hard for him to be an effective commissioner, you know in the sense that you know people like McNulty, it was very easy for guys like McNulty and Lester Freeman to complain about the police department. they weren't the ones getting the dictate from up on high uh, from people who were not in the police department. It's funny, um, we recently had a change in leadership. Uh, where I work and we have what they call um, health services administrators and we've run through quite a few of them and without getting into a lot of details let me let me just say this the HSAs um, commonly walk off the job when they realize that they have no real power that you know they are basically told to carry out the will of the managers from corporate above them and they cannot affect meaningful change in the sites that they work in and then they realize, well then why am I bothering to do this at all? If I if I can't run my site the way I feel like it needs to be run, then they can find any old monkey to do this and I don't need to be here any longer. And that's that's sort of what he's saying. You know, he it was it's it's entirely difficult to run an agency as sprawling as the Baltimore Police Department when you have people above you telling you how to do your job that don't really understand how the police department works. So He's a very tragic character. Uh he's made he's made to be the fool for uh for much of the wire and it turns out that he's better than he's been portrayed up to the and you don't know that until he's done with it, to begin with.
1: Yeah, it it almost makes you wish you'd known you'd seen more of the political pressures that had been put on him earlier on.
2: Yeah, I mean you get you get slivers of it here and there, but and I, I wanted to say this before. I think because The Wire moves kind of slow, and there is so much focus on the minutiae of things, the minutiae of um, political uh, wrangling, the minutiae of police work, the minutiae of drug dealing. And people don't necessarily necessarily want to watch uh, television dramas for the minutiae of real life. They want drama. They want high drama. They want action. Um, and The Wire sort of plays like a book. Where books can t- tend to get into a lot of detail, you know. It's like my wife was telling me, that the Twilight books, you know, the the author just goes on forever at points about a lot of minute details that you don't see in the movies because movies are not books. Yeah. Um, so you get a little bit, a little of that here and there with Burrell's character, but it isn't until that last speech he gives that you really see, oh, that's the story they were trying to tell with him. Um, that and that's sort of the uh, the cautionary tale he's trying to tell Rawls, but. Um, that's ultimately what Cedric finds out. Cedric Daniels finds out very quickly, you know. Yeah, he's very politically motivated. Um, he's uh, you know somebody who's who plays loyal, but also is trying to find an angle to get himself uh, promoted up. And he teams up with Carcetti because the, together they're going to they're going to change Baltimore. They're going to change the police department, and ultimately the world. And Carcetti uh, is unable to fulfill his promises, and ultimately. Because of the way things end in season five, where they have to cover up a huge scandal, and he is forced to play along, he says, "That's it. I've, all, I've had all I can stand, and I can't stand no more. There is no fixing that. You know, uh, what, what that's what the, that's the tragedy of his character is here was a guy who really just wanted to be a good cop and fix things and be in a position to do that, and what he co- and when he comes to find out is, no matter how much he might want it, no matter how uh, he might try there is no fixing this department. That's just not the way the world works. And he says, that's it, I'd rather do something else. Which is what his wife told him to do in season two.
1: Hey, look, if we all did what our wives told us to do, we'd all be better off. It's just kind of what that's supposed to be, I think.
2: (laughs) Certainly my wife would agree with you.
1: But, yeah, he tries so hard for... I mean, when you first meet him, he's trying to climb the political ladder. Then he decides he just wants to be a good cop and make a difference. And he realizes he can't, and at that point, screw it! I'll go become a criminal defense attorney, which yep. is what he does at the
2: end of the show. You know, it worked well for uh, the Jew lawyer, as they say.
1: Yeah, the man with the briefcase to Omar's shotgun. Hey, look, if all this <laughs> is going on. I'll make money off of the. I'll make money off of the drug culture in America. Why not? But we've we talked a lot a about you know the good guys, for want of a better phrase. Yeah, I think we need to talk. And we've touched on Stringer Bell, but I I've mentioned this before. Part of my problem with The Wire, and uh, you know, I don't fall into the, it's the greatest show ever on television. It's very, very good. I don't feel like debating the merits of one show over the other at the moment. That's a debate that never ends. But the first, the first sequence where you see Idris Elba at Stringer Belly sitting in a courtroom with a legal pad wearing a suit, and you look at the end, you know, Idris Elba knows how to wear a suit. You put everyone <laughs> else from that show in a suit, and they look like, get me out of this. By contrast, Idris Elba's Stringer-Bell looks more on... Un- you never see him wearing, uh, for want of a better phrase, hood clothing. He looks... The man knows how to rock a suit. I just. I have a hard time believing that he comes from the projects of West Baltimore. But that's uh, that's my only know, kind yeah, but, of gripe but, but,
2: uh, It's a great Gatsby moment, and they actually talk about that. Um, that's why I know it's a Gatsby moment. Um, where they have... Uh, what's his face? Um...
1: Well, D'Angelo's in Eva. the prison, and they're discussing The Great Gatsby as a novel for the book group that he's a part of.
2: Right. And he talks about
1: how talked- everything you can try to change what you are, but until, but everything that came before you really happened, and it's really a part of you. And unless you're prepared to deal with that and, be, and let that be a part of you, you're never actually going to change, which is kind of the story of Stringer, who never is able to kind of overcome the... Dr- the drug dealing connection and all of the illegal stuff that he did to become because he wants to be a legitimate businessman. He, that's what he wants to do with his life. He wants to, you know, own his own companies. He's all you see him taking classes at the community college in macroeconomics. He keeps trying to better himself, but because he's unable or unwilling to change where he came from, he w- never actually gets anywhere, and that's what catches up to him. In the
2: well, I was going to say what. Um- what uh, D'Angelo says when he's talking about uh, the Great Gatsby is like, oh, you know, Gatsby's, Gatsby has all these books and he's never read any of them. You know, he's fronting with all these books. That's kind of Stringer Bell. Stringer Bell is desperately trying to layer himself up with, uh, you know, with with all these illusions so that he doesn't look like the hood that he really is. And it's actually a point of contention between him and Avon, you know, because he's not an because he, you know, Avon says maybe you would never. You were never thug enough for this life, and then he says, "Oh, thug enough to kill your nephew." Um, which is yeah. To that. But um, you know, that's the thing is, he spends the majority of his time in the wire trying to distance himself for where he, from where he's come from and who he is. You know, and he'll tell you that that's not who he is. He's better than all of this. He's just, he had to make terrible choices with the resources that he had available. And Avon has to keep reminding him, no, you asshole, that's really who you are. You know, that whole sequence with him after um, the state senator, uh, Senator She um, you know, On a brief
1: note, I could not take that man seriously as a senator, just because I had seen the actor before once, and that was in uh, – the Spike Lee movie, The 25th Hour, starring Edward Norton, where he plays the detective who arrests him, and his entire dialogue is that really slow, kind of low, yeah, shit. <laughs> and it's just like, wait a minute, how did that guy get elected to anything when all he does is talk like that?
2: I have two words for you. Right, Dennis, for Kucinich. Dennis Kucinich.
1: <clears throat> yeah, that'll work.
2: <laughs> if, if Dennis Kucinich can be elected to Congress, Anybody can be elected to anything. Jeff Harris can be elected mayor.
1: You know, it could have... hey, look, Jesse Ventura was governor of Minnesota, Arnold Schwarzenegger was a governor of, was a governor of California. Jeff Harris being a city councilman or a mayor is not that far out of the realm of possibility, people.
2: The mayor of DC smoked crack. Oh, <laughs> so just, Senator She and, and sounded like he was a. yeah, I don't remember what his real name is, so it's really bothering uh,
1: me. Uh Clay Davis.
2: Clay Davis, yeah. When Clay Davis basically snuckers um, a stringer out of a whole bunch of money, and Avon has said, boy, he took you for a sucker. He saw you coming a mile away. You know, and, and it's like, see, you know, as much as you try to portray yourself as something that you're not, everybody knows what you really are. Yeah, but,
1: you know, we, you know, the term sociopath gets brought up a lot when we discuss these types of things. And just for the record, a sociopath, by General definition is someone who has no conscience. They have no concept of right or wrong. They just act or react because that's what they feel like doing. I, I think we need to talk about Marlowe Stanfield as far as someone who just, I mean, just individually as a character, as far as someone who just could not possibly care less what goes on around him as long as he gets the respect or whatever he feels he's due because he is just a... Complete psychotic in a lot of ways. He just doesn't care about... And he surrounds himself with people who similarly do not care. They just exist to kill people for him and to, or in one case, beat the poor guy to death. Well, not poor guy, but beat someone to death with the butt of their of his pistol. I mean, as far as being you know, a sociopath, you have that guy who just is... I mean, borderline completely psychotic. It's a small miracle he's even functioning.
2: Yeah, when Jer- when Jeremy and I were doing the season by season, we talked about uh, Marlowe, and um, I remember saying that I, you know, I've met people like Marlowe before, where they're they're just a flat affect. You know, you you just look into their you it, you look into their eyes, and you feel like there's just nothing there. And you know, with Mar- Marlowe, did a very good job of playing of playing a vacant, soulless murderer. You know, it's funny, I hear a lot of talk about this show, Dexter, and I don't know anything about no Dexter, i never watched it. But, I mean, I know what it's about, but, you know, I, I don't cotton to these charismatic killers, okay? When, real killers that I've actually talked to are more like Marlowe. They just, they got, all, you know, all that's going on upstairs is this most minimal survival instinct, and no remorse, just, ab- just totally remorseless in their decision-making. They are all about taking whatever it is they feel that they need, and there's no uh, further thought about it. it-, it you know, these folks will take whatever it is that they deem necessary, and they won't think one thing about how that will affect the greater world around them. And that was Marlowe, made for a thoroughly uninteresting character. You know, Avon, at least, there was there was talk about, well, how do, you know, when you're a drug dealer and you're a drug kingpin, how does that affect your family? And how does that affect you as a person? And, you know, what What does that mean to the larger culture around you? And through Avon and Stringer, there were a lot of questions that could be asked, and they were interesting characters. There's nothing interesting about Marlowe or his gang. Yes, they were fun to watch at times, and they were responsible for some of the greatest lines in that series, because in More we aimed to hit a nigga, you heard? Now, listen. That's all well and good, but it was like they almost needed a vacant, soulless vampire murderer so that they could focus on some bigger issues. Because if they had another character like Avon, who was bigger than life, or Stringer, who was bigger than life, they 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 just couldn't have been enough focus on all the other things they were bringing up in the wire. So he's almost just he's Boris Badenoff, essentially him and his whole Uh, crew. But it's funny
1: because
2: everyone calls Sergei
1: Boris. That was one of my favorite lines uh, from season two. One of the associates of the Greeks is um, Sergey, the Russian, and everybody the first time they meet him calls him Boris, and he all, <laughs> and it annoys him to no end. Every time it happens, like no, my name Ser- my name is Sergey, or you know they call him Serge. I mean, why does everyone call me Boris? And uh, because of Boris Badenov, you know Rocky and Bullwinkle, the cartoon with the squirrel, and he just stares at them like I wish to kill you now, and then when he refuses <laughs> to talk to the police. Them completely indep- uh, I think it's Bunk and Freeman, completely independent of the knowledge that he hates that, they decide, now ah, we'll just call you Boris. And he's sitting there in the interrogation room, and you can just kind of see the steam start to rise from the top of his head.
2: Boris, like, why really? Boris, Boris. It's, it, it, yes, it's very funny. It's also very telling about how we are as Americans. We're just so, you know, I like listening to, um, samer and lambert talk sometimes because you know lambert is lambert will fully admit he has absolutely no clue what's going on in the world outside of um the most um, venal of pop culture and then there's samer who's a little bit more worldly just by virtue of the fact that he has traveled the world and, and <laughs> it was like you really you have no clue your president's about to attack syria R- really you're that much in a bubble You know, it's hilarious to me. So, you know, the whole, like, well, we'll just call you Boris, as if that's the only fucking Russian name you've ever heard of in your life.
1: Uh, Look, I think Lambert's world is only expanded by Taylor Swift's tweets. He only cares about what Taylor Uh, Swift cares.
2: No comment.
1: (laughs) You know I'm right.
2: Uh, I do not wish to engage in this any further. (laughs)
1: Um, I know, I know. I'm with you. I tend not to enjoy poking at other people who write or that we kind of interact with. But... The man has an unabashed love of Taylor Swift and her music, which is completely legitimate and a an little bit scary.
2: And I have an unabashed love of heavyweights, for which I receive an unending amount of torture from you writers. So, uh, back to Marlowe and his vacant stare <laughs> of death.
1: Yeah, he does. not um, it, it doesn't seem like he really engages with anyone. Or, I mean, he has his mentor who owns a rim shop, who he goes to for advice on occasion, and even that which you have to assume is like the most stable human relationship he's ever had and he just it's like he's not there he just no yeah no i'm ready no yeah i'm i'm going after it. and it, whatever the guy says to him it's like if it doesn't agree with what he wants to do it kind of goes in one ear and out the other
2: yeah like i said um it uh he's it, i don't have a lot to say about Marlowe just because i mean somebody one of the television reviewers said he absolutely ruins 4 and 5 I wouldn't go that far at all. I don't think he ruins i like I said, I think they minimized the role of the villain because they only needed him to he becomes a device he becomes you know a a a uh a typical antagonist he keeps the action moving, but that's all he's needed to do with Avon you needed to tell you needed to tell a story you needed to use use the Barksdale family as a vehicle to get inside. The, the world of the drug dealers. By season four, you know what the world of the drug dealers is. They've just spent the last three seasons dealing with it. At this point, they've got to deal with other stuff. And so, you know, you don't need to know the inner workings of his gang or why they're doing what they're doing. You just need to know that they're putting bodies in row houses so that by season five they can, you know, they can figure out what they're going to do with all of that knowledge and just, you know, and just move on with it. You know, yeah. Marlowe was pretty much there to set up this idea of what is a serial killer in today's America? is it you know drug dealers and you know in street gangs that murder without any remorse um and and- in i mean you have look at the statistics on this stuff you I know mean, you look at the amount of street crime and you know and um murders done by uh, by guns among you know people who live in urban streets you know it's a fairly substantial number and is that say less important or more important than the uh, Aurora, Colorado Joker killing or the Newtown uh, shooter where the developmentally disabled nut, you know, walked in and shot up his mom's school. What are we really talking about? Yeah, the, 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 the two that I just mentioned were the, the hot items because it was, you know, white kids blowing up white school. But that happens far less than the amount of black people killing each other in the streets on an ongoing basis. And that is all you needed to know about Marlowe's character. So they, so you don't need to flesh him out any more than that. The only other thing about Marlowe, the thing, was when he tries to clean up at the end, you know, he's told, retire or you're going to prison. Um, and so he opts to retire. And, sorry,
1: he gets like you know, $10 million, million out of of for a, selling off all of his stuff.
2: Yeah. G- gets and and he gets a obscene amount
1: of money. And he still can't stay off of the corner. He comes down in a suit and beats up a couple of drug dealers just because he, for some reason, needs the recognition or can't escape from that.
2: Yeah, exactly. You know, he has to, um, he is compelled to be in the street even when it's against his best interest because, you know, unlike Stringer Bell, who, you know, wanted more and wanted out of that lifestyle, he... Has sort of adopted the mindset of this is all I am and this is all I ever, this is all I'll ever be. In fact, this is all I ever want to be. You know, he's he's kind of in the Vic Mackey level of hell where you're stuck in this place that you don't want to be in. You know, and all you ever wanted to be was this other thing, and they've taken it away from you. So you're the mo- you're the most successful person. I mean, what's what, oh, what's this phase? One guy's in prison next to wevey who was the, who was the second coolest character on the wire for taking murders for sandwiches. Um... Love potato salad pick. and coleslaw. That's right. <laughs> some, some, some potato salad and coleslaw. I'll go a few more.
1: Yep, that's, awesome. that's the line.
2: Yeah, if I ever go to prison for murder, Robert Winfrey, I intend to take. Mur- I intend to take more murders for. Especially if if I'm, if I'm getting life anyway, I'm taking as many murders for as much ch- you know chicken and salad and uh, you know peanut butter and uh, whatever else they, they're going to give me. I'm gonna I'm gonna get as much food out of the deal as possible because I'm a fatty.
1: Well, you know, if you're gonna go to jail, you don't want jail food, so get as much of that as you can. That's
2: right. Um, um what, you know, what else would you like me to admit? To? What else would you like me to admit to?
1: Well, since a lot of this does deal with the drug trade, how about our resident addict? We got to talk about bubbles a
2: little bit. Oh uh, God, dude. Yes, you know when did, Jeremy on.
1: when when bubbles Jeremy and awesome. I
2: did the did our. Did our wire retrospective. I think somebody left a comment there. were just like, how could you guys do five episodes of this and not once talk about Bubbles?
1: Well, then let's make up for it now. Come on, talk to me about Bubbles. The homeless street addict who is an informant and tries to get clean a couple of times. Finally does at the very end, but...
2: Yeah, you know, and then it's summarily replaced by... And then it's summarily replaced by Dookie, whose uh, scene where he shoots up heroin in the horse bar made my wife fall completely to pieces, almost being Baker-acted the process. She, she was teaching a student at this time. It was like her first teaching gig, and she taught in a primarily black school, and she was teaching um, I think it was second or third grade, and this kid reminded her of Dookie in every single way, and so when she saw Dookie sitting in the horse barn shooting up heroin for the first time, she fucking couldn't take it. She was definitely one of those people like, turn this off, I, I, can't, I can't take it anymore. This is too much for me. Um, And I find Dookie to be a much more interesting character than Bubbles.
1: Well, you get Dookie early on in his life, whereas Bubbles, you've got, he's on the street, and he serves as just, gets to inform on the police. He gets to inform to the police because his friend gets beaten up by some drug dealers for no, beaten as bad as he did for no good reason, and he becomes offended by that. He tries to get clean later. Again, at the end, he finally does. He finally kind of reconciles with his sister and kind of gets his life straightened out. But he's, you know, uh, what is it that McNulty describes him as? The short guy who mumbles a lot when he <laughs> he asks for McNulty over the phone fu- uh, an, from another officer. He says, I want to talk to Greg's or McNulty. And that was right after Greggs had been shot. And He says, I got somebody down here asking for him. You know, is he a short guy who mumbles a lot? Yeah, that's him. Yeah, that's Bubbles.
2: I think he, re- I think he refers to McNulty as McNutty.
1: Well, that's fairly accurate, too. He does. It's McNutty.
2: (laughs) Good old McNutty. Officer McNutty. All right. You're going to twist my arm. You're going to make me talk about Bubbles. What do you want me to say? Bubbles is an addict. Um, Bubbles, uh, I'm going to drive you nuts the way I drive Chris Seven nuts on the uh, Casual Heroes. I'm going to talk about The Corner for a moment. All right. Now, The Corner is sort of the prequel, not a prequel to The Wire. I don't know if you've ever seen it before. It was a six-episode miniseries about a family in the throes of heroin addiction. So you have a mom who is what's her face from um uh get K- candy something or other from news radio. Uh she was just on something else recently. Oh, she's on Treme now.
1: Uh, keep um, going, I'll look it up for
2: you. Yeah, she, she she's been on News Radio, she's on Treme now. She's the mom in the corner. Um there's there's a, there's a dad and then there's a uh, teenage son. And uh, and it's narrated by um, the guy that was on Rock, who was also in Alien, the bald black guy who plays Alva something or other in Oz, and he's in Aliens 3. It's good. So bring somebody like me on the talk about movies and television who can't remember anyone's fucking name. In any case.
1: Okay. Uh, I think the girl is Candy Alexander, if I'm looking at the right page.
2: You are looking at the right person, yes. So yeah. the mom is Candy Alexander. Um, the,
1: drug a- the drug-addicted father is T.K. Carter. Uh, the drug dealer is Sean Nelson. And then you have a few others, Clark Peters, Glenn Plummer, a few of the names that I yeah, can there's recognize.
2: A of, there's, a, there's a bunch of people that were in the corner that ended up in Oz and in The Wire, and a lot of these people end up um, on, like, the you know, the Law & Order shows, a lot of whatever, whatever shot in the East Coast. It's always the same, like, group of actors. Um, so it's a, it's about a family in the throes of heroin addiction in Baltimore, and it focuses on how people become addicted to drugs how that affects your family how that affects you internally the struggle once you're uh once you're in the throes of addiction how hard it is to get yourself out of it how people will regard you um even when you try to make changes there's a great line actually in one of the episodes of the corner where um The father, what did you say was C.K. Carter, C.K. Simmons, J.K. Simmons, J.K. Rowling? T.K. Carter. Thank you. T.K. Carter, um, where he goes to see, like, Schindler's List. Like, he cleans himself up one day, and he spends an entire day in the city of Baltimore, like, downtown Baltimore. And he goes to the movies, and he buys, like, vitamins, and, you know, he tries to lead, like, a normal life for just one day. And he goes, and he thinks it's Schindler's List. And he's talking about like, you know, the inhuman horror that befalls the Jews in World War Two. And he's trying, and he goes back to the drug den. He goes back to the, um, the shooting gallery, the the drug house as it's called. And he's telling the other addicts that are all sitting around shooting dope about his experience in the day. And you know, they're like, what what a dope fiend! You need to go to the movies for and all that other stuff, and he starts to tell them about, you know, man's inhumanity, the man, and maybe they need to clean up their acts, and, uh, you know, they're blessed with life. Maybe they should do something with it. And one of them, I think it's Reggie Kathy, or the girl that's in the group, who turns to him and says, motherfucker, just shoot dope and shut up. That's all you need to know about Bubbles, folks. Bubbles, <laughs> Bubbles entirely driven by how he's going to get his next high until his entire life What's left of it, and there isn't much, completely falls apart. He devotes himself to um, this uh, teenager who he accidentally murders when he tries to... He creates a uh, poisonous uh, hot shot.
1: Well, that, to that's the to... second teenager that he takes under his wing. The first one is that white kid, Johnny, only white guy in West Baltimore, apparently, who <laughs> lives on the streets, <laughs> winds up... Uh, I forget what happens to him. He winds up in jail, I think. And Bubbles winds up taking this other teenager under his wing who snorts up on the hot shot that he had sent to... He had devised so that he could kill this drug dealer who was causing them problems. Because he kills his friend, he then turns himself in and tries to commit suicide, which doesn't work. They get him detoxed, they get him clean, and he actually... He has kind of a happy story at the end because he winds up reconciling with his estranged sister and... Kind of is able to get out from under the thumb of addiction, but...
2: So, I mean... Uh, sorry, really I interrupted it. you I mean, Yeah, no, it's fine. Um, it, so, so Bubbles is your narrator through, you know, what it's like to be an addict. Uh, and you know what it's like to be an addict, Robert Winfrey? It's, it's like this. It's all you ever care about is drugs. That's it. That's your life. Whatever you need to do, no matter who you need to hurt, no matter how you need to get it, it's all about getting high. I was
1: actually was a little surprised awesome. that Bubbles and Johnny decided to buy pants after they had their pants taken, rather than just buy drugs.
2: Well, it's cold in Baltimore. Let's face facts here. Um, have pants, we'll shoot up. Now listen. Um, yeah, Bubbles only starts to get interesting when he takes the second kid into his house, and he kind of becomes, you know, and he says, like, you, you know, in order to, he's trying to teach the kid how to, you know, hustle and uh, sell stuff from the cart so that they can make more money to buy drugs with and then the kid accidentally kills himself and bubbles is now racked with guilt and that's what finally forces him to get clean and stay clean is his guilt and the whole fifth season is you know is about, for him his story is is about the intrinsic value of guilt you know i uh it takes me back to uh, star trek 5 um not the undiscovered country that's star trek 6 star, the final frontier where uh sibok says i couldn't help but notice your pain share it with me and uh, Captain Kirk says, ah, I don't want to share my pain with you. I need my pain. That's right. It makes me human. You need your pain. That's right. It makes me human. Um, and Bubbles, you know, his thing is, you know, he needs his guilt. It's his guilt that is keeping him on, you know, the straight and narrow, and he doesn't want to, you know, and again, he also feels the need to punish himself for uh, the the accidental death of this kid. <sighs> you know, Rob, I I just don't find Bubbles that interesting. And maybe it's because I've been dealing with addicts for the last 10 years, 10-plus 10 years. God, how long have I been doing um,
1: Don't start thinking about it. You'll get depressed.
2: <laughs> and it's not getting any better, and they don't get better as people. And, I, and, look, God bless you if you are an addict and you've pulled yourself out of it and you've gone on to lead a productive life. God bless you. I'm happy for you. Um, and I'm glad there are services out there so that you can uh, – for you to access so that you can do that but please don't make me talk one minute longer about the, the depth and breadth of these characters I just don't give a fuck, I'm more interested in, in, in the rest of the characters that didn't spend the majority of their life injecting poison into their veins.
1: Um, fair enough, I mean you know, you, you, know, you work with, with addicts all the time, I mean I have to imagine that that's just, I mean, when you see one on television, it's like, uh, you know, I, I my mom's, I go to the movies or I watch television to be entertained, not necessarily to be reminded of my daily life. And, and I imagine in your case, there's a fair amount of guys like Bubbles in your daily life, and you just don't need to see any more of that outside of that. Do you know how
2: many toothless? Do you know how many toothless street m- urchins and morlocks I've had to deal with in my life?
1: I don't want I, to. I, of
2: that. I swear it is. No, it is not uncommon for me to deal with people with their face tattooed. Remember when tattooing your face was, wow, Mike Tyson tattooed his face. Oh, He's crazy. He's out there. Everyone I talk to every single day of my life has their face tattooed.
1: Oh, yeah. It, especially if you're in prison at this point. It's just like, oh, he's got his face <laughs> tattooed. Yeah, that's about par for the Yeah,
2: it's, I don't even notice it anymore. I mean, it's like yeah. face paint in pro wrestlers. It's as common as the day is long. And so... I know everyone loves bubbles. Everyone loves bubbles like everyone loves, you know, O'Reilly. I, it's just, uh, uh, who cares about an addict? Robert Winfrey, who cares about the addict? You know, let's talk about the let's talk about the people who are struggling with trying to change the police department. Who let's talk about the people who are struggling with their identity as a person versus their obligation to their drug lord family. They're much more interesting people. This fucking addict walked the streets of Baltimore and shot himself up for years on end and then finally pulled himself out of it when he accidentally killed a kid. So what? So what, I ask? Yeah,
1: fair enough. Right. We're in the last five minutes or so, so there anybody that you want to talk about that we haven't touched on? Uh,
2: Kima and uh, Carver both change. You know, you brought All that right. up before, and um, i I going to talk Kima, about then. Carver.
1: No, Carver's <laughs> fine. Okay. Uh, Carver, I want to go talk about go with Carver
2: because, like I said, he starts as sort of a uh, you know, him and Herc are cut from the same cloth. They're both sort of you know brickheads um, in season one and season two. They're just they're all about thugging and bugging, as I said before, just throwing guys on the ground and you know just sort of being worthless as cops. And there's a, there comes a point in uh, in season three where uh, Carver sort of ascends to a position of leadership. He's the staff sergeant and uh, he's doing the same thing and he is effectively useless on his job and he's called out for it by major bunny colvin who says you know when i when i ask my when i ask my sergeant in charge of the in charge of the narcotic unit about people in the street dealing in narcotics i expect answers not a shrugging of shoulders stopping at which point you know carver starts to understand that it's more about just throwing bodies on the ground um, it's a shift and it's a shift and change for him. And then he's and for his and, and you know how he's rewarded for this shift and change, for this shift in ideals. Uh, in season four, he'll completely ruin one child's life. <laughs> My God, one of the, the one of the uh, television um, reviewers uh, was talking about the scene where Randy is yelling into the hallway, "You're going to be there for me, Carver. You're going to look out for me." And this is after they've burned down his house. And Carver's just walking out looking like he's going to tear his own heart out. Um, it's good stuff there. But, yeah, Carver learns over the course of five seasons, you know, the importance, of, um, the, the importance of knowing your community, being a part of the community, and how that can help you in being um, the protector of that community, which is what cops are supposed to be. They're not soldiers. They're supposed to protect the community. They're supposed to work with the community in protecting itself, not being bullies. And he learns that lesson over five seasons, and by the you know the fifth season, he is, you know, despite the stuff with Randy, he is rewarded with yet another promotion that he's earned, that he hasn't just gotten through uh, polit- politicking and such. It is um,
1: political. The only thing I'm going to say about Kima. Sergeant the first time.
2: It, yeah, the only thing I'm going to say about Kima is that she um, she starts to go down the McNulty path and. She realizes that's not I said this earlier she realizes she's that's not who she wants to be. she doesn't want to be Mcnulty, and so she reconnects with the um the son that she didn't want in the first place. you know she reconnects with him and she she um becomes an honorable detective to the point where she finds out that Lester and McNulty have done something dishonorable, and she turns them in because you know she doesn't she doesn't want to be. Of the cop that justifies their actions with, you know, the greater good. You know, you, you have to, you have to, every man must have a code. That's the model of the wire, and hers is to do things by the book. Uh, and she, you know, so it's about choices, isn't it, Robert Winfrey? It's all about choices. And she makes the choice midway through the series that she isn't going to become a complete piece of shit like the people around her.
1: Well, that's a good choice to make.
2: <laughs> yes. Well, considering we're talking about series where people make choices to become complete pieces of shit, she stands out.
1: It's true. Her her deciding not to become McNulty was a good moment, especially when you see her going down that path. It's like, no, here's this guy who nobody in their right mind wants to be like. He doesn't want to be himself most of the time. And you're turning into him, and thank God for Lester Freeman saying, look at what you – here's McNulty passed out drunk in a corner. This is what you're going to be if you keep going the way you're going.
2: Yes. If, that, if there was ever a ghost of Christmas future moment, it was that one
1: all right that's well, we ended just about on time, all right, so anything you want to plug for this coming week
2: uh this Tuesday starts our two part retrospective of the first blood slash Rambo series on the long road to ruin uh week after that, I believe we are fuck what are we um on the metal hammer of Doom. yeah we, we are it's Robert's pick. And we will be reviewing the new uh Civil War album that has nothing to do with Marvel Comics, I promise you. Um of course every Sunday is the four oh one ground to pound radio show. And Saturday night, this Saturday night, the uh September seventh, I will be doing coverage duty, uh as we are going to be uh review um sorry, covering Bellator with uh, without Joe Tom. Warren. Yeah, no Joe Warren. Um, it's going to be headline for the middleweight the title hour
1: long Joe Warren unrivaled special that aired on Spike TV. Which
2: you know, I don't I, like I Joe you Warren at first. Pers-
1: I did. Or can you still hear me? Oh, you um, can't headlined hear me by
2: Alexander Schlemenko and Brett Cooper. It also uh, is the beginning of the season nine uh, middleweight tournament. Um, and we got a and we got a pitbull sighting. Hot ah, damn! Patrici, uh pitbull, 155 pounder versus Derek Anderson. So. Uh, I'll be doing coverage for that first on Spike.com and then on Spike TV proper starting at 6 o'clock. So go ahead and come on 401. Check that out. Uh, you can also look forward to casual heroes bringing their wrestling podcast to the for, to the Rattletton Broadcasting Network uh, very, very soon. Hello? Yep, I'm here.
1: Oh, sorry. I got dropped again, I guess. Which happened? So that's PA all I got, there.
2: sir. <laughs> <laughs> we got, all, right. So, all right. What? How many more weeks do we have left before Breaking Bad?
1: Um, I don't know. I want to yeah, say I two or on. three. Give me a sec. I'll look it up. You're ready. But yeah, I found it funny that uh, Spike TV went through all the effort to per- to do that hour long uh, promo for Joe Warren with his new camp and Greg Jackson and everybody else, and it and then he got knocked out in training. I've heard through the grapevine and couldn't compete because he couldn't pass the concussion test. So all that promotional effort wasted. We have four more weeks before the end of the Breaking Bad.
2: Well, it's the 29th. Sunday the 29th is the last episode of Breaking Bad, and I know this because um, that's the night we're going to be doing our postseason series finale uh, Google Chat discussion. So you, people should look out for that as well. But I'm looking at the calendar. If you do these every Friday night until then, you have three shows left.
1: That sounds about right.
2: So what do you go, So how are you doing this? What do you, you got three shows. Which ones are you going to do?
1: Well, I want to do The Shield. I don't know if I'll have you back on, or there was someone else from the website, a new guy who said he wanted to be on for that one, and I'm all about reaching out. So we could do that one then. I think I want to do Dexter. So we'll have Sam Riccardi back for that, because he's a huge Dexter fan. And for the last one, I'll probably just fold in anyone that I've kind of forgot about. So anybody listening to this, if you have a character, a television show, anything like that that you feel merit some type of discussion i'm on well, twitter are you only, do, are you,
2: are you, are you only doing shows that have ended
1: no i can do ongoing shows
2: um well i mean just i you said i heard the shield and i heard dexter uh which i'm assuming you're gonna have to get samarcati on for dexter or sean Comer, or one of those two um yeah you said you, you know, there's other people interested in doing the shield but if no one's interested in doing the shield uh pick me pick me um uh, <laughs> But uh, you know, you've got Sons of Anarchy out there. You've got Boardwalk Empire. Uh, I don't really think Tremé fits into this, though. It's another David Simon show. Um, uh, Weeds, Orange is the New Black. You've got uh, you've got a couple out there. I'd be curious to see which one you come up with.
1: Yeah, my I I think for the last one, I'll either do kind of a compilation of stuff that I. Didn't have time to give a full show, to, so we'll do little bits of, like, Sons of Anarchy, Boardwalk Empire. Um, oh, there's another one that you didn't mention that I was thinking of, but, you know, Orange of the New Black warrants some consideration. If for no other reason, I get to trash Jason Biggs for a couple of minutes, which is always va- good value as far as I'm concerned.
2: I loved Orange is the New Black. I thought it was great.
1: I did. I know. I, I get to trash Jason Biggs, which I like doing. Okay. Okay. Uh, he played the fiance, just one of the more unlikable characters as far as that whole se- that first season went.
2: I yeah, I have a friend of mine who hates Jason Biggs and everything he stands for, and we actually had a long discussion about that. Um, how about Sex in the City? Uh,
1: I've never seen it.
2: <laughs> okay, I just I'm just being funny, throwing throwing that out there as a, uh, uh, I mean, a red herring. There's
1: that um, Prison Break might warrant some discussion.
2: How about 24?
1: 24 absolutely does. There's a lot of interesting guys. I mean, so he said the last episode, I might just, you know, I'll make a list. I'll take inclusions from anyone listening or anyone who wants to be on the show. Here,
2: here's what I think you should do. And, by the way, you're cutting out again. Uh, if I could finally if I, if I, if I, if I be so bold, I think you should do one episode dedicated to The Shield with, with a guest. I think you should do Dexter with Sam or Cotty or Sean Comer or whoever's available. I think you should do 20. I think on the, your last show before Breaking Bad, I think you should do 24 solo like you did Hannibal Lecter.
1: Yeah, I could do that. I did, I was a pretty big fan of 24.
2: I totally think you should you should end this series of good men gone bad with 24 and have it be the if no one's interested in doing 24 with you, just have that be the Robert Winfrey hour.
1: Yeah, I could do that. I could well, I debated doing Game of Thrones just because, you know, a lot of people are into it, but my issue with that was I read the books a while ago. So, when mm-hmm. I was doing research, when I was doing research for this series, I was looking up other lists and people, and you know, who everyone else thought was you know great TV villains and everything, and Joffrey Barathon kept coming up, and I'm like, okay, but by the time you're all realizing he's a disgusting horrible human being and you want him dead, I already know that, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen, if you haven't read the books, I already know that Tyrion Lannister kills him. So I'm already past that. So I have a hard time with that, but yeah, I'll do 24 solo if I have to, just because there's so now much. Now, are,
2: are you going to do a show dedicated to Breaking Bad on October fourth? I
1: believe so, or thereabouts. That week, or at least that week, at some point. So, just because I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of that one, so I'll talk about every all the assorted characters that come through there and see how the series ends up. I mean, it might end horribly, kind of like The Sopranos, and I decide no, I don't feel like doing and doing a whole episode after we do the hangout after the, after we do the Google Hangout thing. But if it ends. You know, in an interesting manner. I don't mean interesting as in wait, what happened? Then yeah, I'll do a show the same week that it ends.
2: I will not be available for that. I will be at Mickey's Not So Scary Halloween Party.
1: All right. <laughs>
2: just wanted, to, just needed to tell you that. But uh, oh, no Thanks worries. for having me, Robert. I um I do so enjoy coming on your show and just uh, expounding for hours on uh, my favorite things.
1: Hey, you're welcome anytime. And once I get done with all of these television ones, I can probably get back to movies. Or books, you know, I, I liked having this planned out for the next couple of weeks, so now I just got to look a little bit beyond that and say, hmm, should I devote an episode to Darth Vader or not? We can get the many faces of Vader.
2: You see, if you want to bring on a groveling apologist for the uh, prequel trilogies, you should have me back for that.
1: You don't have to apologize for what's good about them. There are good things about the prequel. Not many, but they are there.
2: All right, well... I'm a huge Star Wars nerd, so if you're lacking four other Star Wars nerds that want to come on and talk Darth Vader, here I am. Pick me, pick me.
1: You know, I, for as much crap as Phantom Menace gets, that is one of only, like, four movies I have ever paid to see in theaters more than one.
2: Yeah, I saw it and, twice opening day. And I saw it in 3-D with my wife.
1: I saw that movie, I think, four or five times during its original theatrical run in theaters. And, yeah, I paid to go see it in 3-D when it was re-released in 3-D, so... You know, I can sit. I can acknowledge the faults that that movie has all day long. I have never not enjoyed watching it. I mean, despite the obnoxious kid and the waste of the, waste of the talent that comes from Liam, ne- Liam Neeson, Ewan McGregor, and Natalie Portman, you know, I can just still enjoy the movie. I can sit back and enjoy it. And it's one of the few that I said, that's, I have paid to see movies in theaters more than twice. I can count it on one hand how many times I've paid to see a movie in theaters more than twice. More than once, you're getting into you know maybe a dozen. More than twice, there's off the top of my head, I think three because I paid to see that more than once. The first Lord of the Rings and The Mask of Zorro when it came out. And as far as B, as far as theatrical releases go, those are it. Those are the ones that I have invested a fair amount of money into. Everything else, it's usually one and done, or I get someone else to pay for me to see it the second time.
2: Three teens try to rob grandma with toy gun. <laughs>
1: Welcome to our world. It's a crazy. I think one. that's a
2: great place. I, I think that and the girl of the the, the video of the girl twerking falling through <laughs> a glass table and setting herself on fire is the greatest thing in the history of the internet.
1: I could not stop that, laughing at that. I had to share it with my family. I did It's <laughs> Oh, if only that could have been Miley Cyrus instead. But hey, my wishing emulation I'm on
2: office. I'm in my office I, in the jail and I can't breathe. I'm laughing so hard. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I well, I wish immolation on a lot of people, and I'm adding to that list anyone who twerks. All right, so let me get my brief plugs out of the way. We did this on Friday. Uh, Locked in the Guillotine is up. I have a double review of UFC 164, The Fall of Black Jesus, and, U- and UFC Fight Night 28. Glover Teixeira beats another sub-top-ten opponent, although apparently that's enough to get a title shot nowadays. But, hey, John Jones has just beaten everybody else so badly, we have to reach for talent. I mean, Alexander Gustafson has done nothing to make anyone believe he has a chance of beating John Jones, and the entire promotion is based on here's a guy who is as tall and is physically very is physically
2: similar. Never mind that he got right, choked out by Phil dro- Dave. All right, we're going to talk about this more on Sunday. That, Robert, thanks for having me on. I'm going to drop off.
1: All right. Yeah. Thank you for being here, Mark. Like I said before, you're welcome anytime. And that will do it for this episode. Thanks for sticking with us. I'll be back next week doing either. The Shield or Dexter, if you want an update, follow me on Twitter at 411, uh, sorry, at Winfrey MMA. I have a weekly column on 411 Mania. You can find me on any of those places if you have suggestions to make or, you know, anything along those lines. I'll just say, remember that the bad guys make the bright spots that much brighter because if if there weren't shadows, we wouldn't know what light was. So, good night, everybody.
0: So, say good night to the bad guys.